a few of us at the network uh, just want to dedicate this little song to you on this uh, special day. Happy birthday to This is Steve Burgess from Affiliate Relations, and uh, for me and all the rest of the staff here, we want to wish you a very happy birthday. Brian Saylor. Holly Marple. Arthur. Tim Austin. Happy birthday to you, big guy. John Newman. Lisa Lyon. Alex Joy. Karen Edding. Bob Joss. Anne Fredenberg. Thomas West. Donna. Customer Service. Mike Stafford. Stephanie Smith. Vicki Eastwood. Jose Corona. Omar Corona. Marcelo Corona. Miley Reed. And here's one you haven't heard. Verlin Beard. Kathy Pear. Jennifer Bake. Jim Oaks. Yuta Benscott. Julian Hudson. Summer Thompson. Roger Daniels. Valerie Knight. Marvin Pangburn. Yuta Benscott. David Shortreed. Alan Masters. Delani Conrad. Hey, Art, happy birthday to you. Just to show you how sophomoric this staff can be. This is what they actually wanted me to recite to you. A poem. Excuse me. Roses are red, violets are blue. Some folks are young, but you're 52. Diligently worked on by the staff of uh, your network here. Never mind, you and I share that esteemed age, and uh, it's a real good one. Arthur, for me, Alan Corbett, president of Chancellor Broadcasting and Talk Radio Network, happy birthday to you and uh, many, many, many more. All the best, buddy. Hey, Art, this is the regular guy here, and I uh, have been informed that now you have, well, become older than dirt. As a matter of fact, the rumor in the desert, Art, I don't know if your wife's spreading it alone or what, but the rumor is you're not as good as you once were, but you're as good once as you ever were. Hey, happy birthday. This is Dave Dawson, and to the absolute owner of Nighttime Radio, Art Bell. Happy birthday, Art. Listening to Art Bell is good for for your health, it's high in fiber and low in fat. Hi, I'm Deborah Ray from Here's to Your Health, wishing Art Bell the happiest and the healthiest of birthdays. Keep up the good work, Art. Hi, Art. This is Ed Nowicki, host of American Crime Line. I want to wish you a happy birthday. I would have sang you happy birthday, but if you ever heard me sing, that's present enough that I didn't sing. Happy birthday, Art. Art, this old buddy Elvis, and uh, I've listened to your show quite there, and uh, I have a few of them uh, life-after-death experiences I'm to talk to you about. Art, happy birthday. This is your offstage announcer, Ross Mitchell in Reno, and it seems as though you have more than one birthday for Adam. Or maybe it's just that celebrating your birthday involves so many people in so many markets. I just hope I look as young as you do when I get to be that age. Not to imply that you're old, Art, but if one Jurassic Park Lost World reminds you of your childhood, then maybe you should start with the calcium supplements. And very possibly the real reason your program now starts an hour earlier is because you just can't stay up as late as you once did. Art, many happy returns. Hi, Art. Happy 52nd and a hundred more. Love you, Linda. Hello, Art. It's Brian Jennings, the Super Talk Radio Consultant Inc. guy. 
and uh, just happy birthday. Many, many, many great wishes to you because uh, I've known you for a number of years. Uh, we've put you on over 20 stations that I consult and work with in their programming departments. And frankly, if I had 120 stations, I would put you on all of them. Uh, you're terrific. You've really uh, lit up the night, so to speak, coast to coast. Happy birthday, Art. Take care now. Hi, you old artichoke. From the sunny shores of far west Australia, this is your older Texan friend and his lady wishing you well for your 52nd birthday. We tried to arrange an earthquake for you, but, well, we could only arrange some bad weather. Sorry. Anyway, from Stan and Holly, happy birthday. Live long and prosper. It's Michael Horn from Cusco, and I just wanted to wish my good friend, Abel, a very happy birthday, and I hope all his wishes come true. Art, it's Brad Steiger. Happy birthday. And just remember, buddy, you're not getting older, you're getting better. Hi, Art Bell. This is Sherry Hansen Steiger wishing you a very, very blessed and happy birthday. Happy birthday, Art. This is David Masters. And it's amazing that you've lived as long as you have, staying up all night the way you do, but uh, I guess that's why Coast to Coast AM is the hottest overnight radio show in America. Hi, Trey. Your listeners may not know you by this name, but this is Dad, and here it is again. Another birthday, and may you have had, and may you have, whichever the case may be, the happiest and happiest of all, and from Ricky, too. Hey, Art. It's Bryce Abel. Hey, listen, since Majestic 12 forced NBC to cancel Dark Skies, had to go underground. I mean, I'm sure you know what I mean. After all, you're out there hiding in the desert, right? Anyway, I'm calling from a payphone right now, so I can't stay on long. Their traces are so good these days, you got less than 30 seconds, and then they're on you like a cheap black suit and chase. So here's the message. Happy birthday, Art. I mean, enjoy it while you can, man, because when they come after you, you've got no time for cake or blowing out candles. Party on, Art. i got to go. Art, it's Andy Ludlam from KABC in Los Angeles. Happy birthday from all of us here in L.A. You already got your present last month. That's when you got your best ratings ever and continued with the number one overnight show in Los Angeles. Happy birthday and continued success, Art. Hey, Art Bell. This is Nancy Zentak calling you from Planet Radio WGST in Atlanta, Georgia. And I have to say, welcome to our planet. We dig having your wild weirdness on on overnight, and the response has been great. Happy, happy birthday. From the great city by the bay, home of the Golden Gate Bridge, Fisherman's Wharf, and more unusual people than reside on most planets in this universe, this is Jack Swanson, Program Director at KSFO San Francisco. All of us at KSFO and all of us in Northern California wish you, Art, a happy birthday and many, many more. Art, this is Sherry Sawyer at one of your new affiliates, WREC Radio in Memphis, and we're wishing you a very, very happy birthday. This is Tony Miner, Program Director of Hot Talk 570 KVI in Seattle. Art, you are nighttime radio, period, in the Seattle area and in the whole Puget Sound region. On behalf of the whole KVI staff, uh, let me wish you a very happy birthday and a great broadcast year. This is Randall Bloomquist at WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina. Happy birthday, Art. You're the king of overnight talk in the southeast. Art, Rich Carey here, 570 wins, WHNZ in Tampa Bay, Florida. My friend, I don't know if you live on the edge, but your show is right on. Thanks for great radio and happy birthday. 
and we dig your gig. Happy birthday, Art, from Keith, your webmeister. May you have a million hits a day and no visits from the government. Uh, hold on a minute. This is Merle Haggard, uh, the only one I know of uh, that sings country music and listens to the Art Bell Show. And uh, I want to say uh, happy birthday to you. I understand you're going to be uh, 52. That's a wonderful age. I wish I could be 52 again. Uh, but anyway, from everybody in my camp, we want to say happy birthday to Art Bell. Hey there, Art Bell. This is your friend Michael Harrison, editor of Talkers Magazine, the trade publication and talk radio, and uh, also occasional uh, weekend broadcaster on the talk radio countdown show heard across the nation. Taking this opportunity to wish you a very happy birthday. And uh, certainly also to congratulate you on, according to our research, being the number four most listened to talk show host in America. And, uh, of course, uh, you are getting kind of old. And if you're able to hang in there, maybe soon you'll be number three, two, and one. But uh, you're definitely a testimony to uh, how people can continue to live productive lives into their senior years. Nevertheless, I'm only kidding. Best wishes to your continued success and happy birthday, Art. This is Bob Crane from C. Crane Company. Art, happy 52nd birthday. Uh, this is a significant event indeed, and a few significant thoughts come to mind, which is a significant event in itself sometimes. Area 51 is 52 miles away, and there are 52 weeks until your next birthday. And select attendants are on sale tonight for $52. Seriously, have a happy birthday from all of us here at Seacrane Company, and thanks. Hi, Art. It's Whitley. I want to wish you a happy 413th birthday, or whatever it is, maybe the 412th. Many happy returns of the day, and I will wish you a happy birthday on behalf of Victor, too. But this is not and never has been Victor. Art, this is Father Malachi Martin sending you birthday greetings. Art, this is your birthday, and I do feel, as one man to another, that you have merited great praise and great gratitude from people like me, guests you have had on your show, how much pleasure you gave them besides giving them the opportunity to speak to a very wide audience, which you have created by your skill as a broadcaster, and so congratulations, may you live and thrive for decades and decades to come. Amen. Hey, Dart, there's uh, one more thing from me, little Tony Howell. <laughs> that was great. Uh, thank you all. I, you know, what do you say after something like that? Oh, uh, Hi, that's my wife. Say it again. Happy birthday, baby. <laughs> and I've got, a, uh, I've got a birthday pie in front of me, and I'm going to blow it out. I've got one candle. One candle. That's very appropriate. I don't want a birthday. Very funny. <laughs> All right, here it is. I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Thank you. All right, well, so much for my birthday. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to think about it, you know. Uh, that was uh, really, though, I thought a particularly wonderful tape. Thank you. Uh, thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Well, tonight, uh, let's see how much trouble we can get in, and I suspect a substantial amount because Richard Hoagland is here. 
And Richard, uh, like myself, has trouble as he'll name if it wasn't Charles. Quick note, um, uh, for Stan, who could not send me any earthquakes, Stan, uh, you uh, recorded that too early. We are showing a 6.6 a short time ago in the Aleutian Islands and a 5.6 in Argentina. Um, also, this note, uh, hi Art, did you hear about the weather in the Pacific Northwest? More tornadoes, more thunderstorms, torrential rain. The jet stream is absolutely weird. This time of year, it is supposed to be up by the border of the U.S. and Canada, but it's all the way down in the bottom of the southern plains. That's what they said on the Weather Channel today. From Laura. Uh, Laura, you are correct. The weather is strange, and I've been meaning to comment for days on this. I live in the desert. It is now mid-June, my birthday, 17th. And the desert should be cooking. We should be well above 100 degrees. And I must tell you, we still have snow on the mountain above me, and we've been getting, if we're lucky, into the 80s every day. There is something very, very bizarre going on with the weather. I think, personally... It is the quickening. And that's the last thing I'll cover. And then we're off to uh, Manhattan and Richard C. Hoagland. I have authored a book called The Quickening. And uh, we kind of paused last night in the advertising because uh, it's going like crazy. So if you wish an autographed copy of The Quickening, Richard, yes, I'm sending you one. Uh, if, if the rest of you would like an autographed copy of The Quickening... Uh, the window is about to close on that opportunity, so you need to uh, get it ordered right away. The number is 1-800-864-7991. That's 1-800-864-7991. And you can call 24 hours a day, and you should continue to call until you can get through. This is an important book. All right, now to Manhattan. Who is Richard C. for Charles Hoagland? He is a troublemaker. He was a science advisor to Walter Cronkite. Daddy. Everybody thought of Walter Cronkite as daddy. He was a one-time advisor to NASA, and now their poster boy. They have his photograph as you walk into NASA down there in Houston. It hangs right there in an honored spot, and he is the winner of the Angstrom Science Award. Here he is, Richard C. for Charles Hoagland. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. You know, I promised I would never do that after Cape Canaveral, <laughs> but I had to. You know, 52 is very important. Um, I mean, how many people can celebrate tonight with me their tetrahedral birthday? <laughs> is, is it tetrahedral? Of course. That's why there are 52 weeks in a year, and that's why there are 52 octoons in the Mayan calendar, etc., and 52 playing cards in the deck, etc., etc. Et so Bob Crane really was on to something. Absolutely. And the Selected Ten is $52 tonight. It's, it's almost <laughs> too much. Furthermore, in specific honor of the day that Art Bell was born, hmm. we moved gently, Hail Bob, out of Orion tonight. Really? It left Orion. Okay. Which is just about time, because we're going to talk a lot about Orion, among other things. Can Hellbop still be seen? Oh, sure. With the From naked eye? the southern eye. hemisphere. Ah. Uh -huh. With the naked eye. They're, they're having a, a more distant view than we had when it came in, because it came in over the northern 
you know, hemisphere of the Earth over the northern ecliptic pole of the solar system, and it's leaving by the southern route, mm. making a kind of a U-turn at 90 degrees to our orbit. So the southern hemisphere is being regaled now with with some of the views, not as not as close, obviously. Uh, after May 5th, it crossed the ecliptic heading south, and it's receding. I don't know exactly how far out it is tonight, but it, it, with, with a pair of binoculars or a decent telescope, it's, it's really still quite spectacular. Okay. And uh, it's leaving Orion in your honor. Well, uh, <laughs> wonderful. Anyway, I, there is so much going on, Richard. Um, you and I have been talking about things that I have been hinting about on the radio, and I, I'm not sure how much you can or you're willing to talk about and where we should even begin. Now, one thing I have said on the radio is um, the STS-48 video is interesting, fascinating. It appears to show objects that are doing things that they can't do, um, at least not objects that we've built that we know about. But you came to visit me, and when you did, you brought with you the STS-80 video. And the only thing I've told my audience is that the STS-80 video makes 48 look like kid stuff. <laughs> and that's, that's a big tease. So I don't know how much you're willing to tell them about what's in 80, but... Well, I, we're going to not do 80 tonight because we're still working on the analysis. The problem with 80 is... Um, what I can say is that we went back to the original footage. We we tracked back after uh, a gentleman in California whose first name is John and whose last name completely escaped me uh, picked this up in uh, on, a, on a Sacramento cable station that was broadcasting NASA Select mm -hmm. uh, last December 1. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the information I had originally, which was that he had picked it up as a rebroadcast of the day's activities, was erroneous. We have now done enough work that we know, uh, corroborating between Greenwich Mean Time, Chinelapse Time, and Pacific Standard Time, that John actually saw this live as it was being downlinked from the shuttle. And everybody should know, unlike STS-48, where there was a camera pointed outside a shuttle window, the video from STS-80 is taken with cameras that were outside the shuttle. Well, let me make one correction. The STS-40 video was also with a camera in the payload bay. It oh, was it not was. taken through a window. Oh, no, okay. These are all remote control cameras, and there are, let me see, there's two, four, minimum of five cameras that are color cameras in the bay. They're positioned at both ends of the rectangle. If you can imagine the payload bay of the shuttle, it's about the size of an 18-wheeler uh, trailer. When, you're, when you pass an 18-wheeler on the highway, or it passes you, as more often than not happens these days, yeah. uh, that's the volume of the payload bay of the shuttle. It's about 15 feet wide and about 65 feet long. All right, and hold that description. We're at the bottom of the hour. I knew this was going to be quick. And uh, we'll come back and get into whatever trouble you deem we should get into. We're going to try and talk about Egypt. I know that one will get us in trouble. Richard C. Hoagland is my guest tonight. And there's a lot coming up. <laughs> I'm Art Bell, and from the high desert, this is the American Independent CBC Radio Network.
Art Bell is taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. Now, here again... Art Bell. Richard C. Hoagland is here. Troubles on the way. We're going to talk a little more about, we're going to drag a couple of little things about STS-80 out of Richard. Because I saw some things that blew my mind. I mean, absolute mind blowers. And uh, we've got to at least, I don't know, tease a little bit, say something about it. I can't stand it. I hate secrets. And lately I've had to keep so many. It's driving me absolutely crazy. This... To the best of Art Bell. Back to Richard C. Hoagland. Richard, uh, before we leave STS 80, um, can't we tell them a little bit about it? I mean, just a little bit. I mean, the video was so amazing, Richard, I just can't contain myself. The one shot, for example, uh, from, from the ground, what do you say? Well, this is what actually triggered it. Um, when when we were last talking about this a few moments ago, uh, this gentleman in California in Sacramento watching television, watching NASA Select, is now we know was watching a live downlink from the shuttle by way of TDRS. The the link goes from the, the spacecraft, the shuttle, up to the tracking and data relay satellite, which right. is 22,300 miles up. The signal then goes down to White Sands, to an extremely secure, literally NSA control center. Uh, NASA is part of DOD, as we've established in the law, and all of the signals from the shuttle and all of the, the Hubble data that goes through TDRS and anything else is, we now know, encrypted. So it goes down through this White Sands control center. It goes back up to a commercial satellite, goes back down to the Goddard Space Flight Center, where I used to work outside Washington, goes back up to a communication satellite and back down to Houston where they see it. Then at some point in that switching it gets back to the um, to the um, uh, NASA Select satellite which is Galaxy 1 I think and people get to see it all over the world. Right. In that elaborate labyrinth of electronic relays anybody could have flipped a switch. Anybody could have said whoops and blanked it out. But they, they didn't. did not. And somehow it got broadcast. Now, what's interesting, and I forget who did this number system for us, but if you count the interval plus the mission between SDS-48 and SDS-80, it's 33 missions. Okay. And 33, as you know, in this Masonic uh, trail we've been following, somehow winding its way through NASA is important. We also have an experimental, you know, new shuttle that they've got on the drawing boards called the X-33, but we won't get into that tonight. Of course not. Um, so this this signal was seen by our friend in California, and what he noticed, uh, Art, was the thing that you saw, which is over a city. You're on the night side of the Earth. You're seeing brilliant moonlit clouds. We now know that it was a first-quarter moon. And you're coming up on the Terminator. You're a few minutes before dawn, which, of course, hits earlier when you're at altitude. 
The shuttle is about 220 miles up, moving at 17,500 miles an hour toward the northeast, because yes, it's in a 28.4 degree inclination to the equator. And we now know that they had swung down across the Pacific, up across South America, and we're approaching the west coast of South America over the Amazon basin, looking back. And as you know, the camera operator uh, was zooming the field of view. Well, I guess we ought to uh, preface this by saying already significant things had begun to occur. We began to see things very much like the ones seen in STS-48, things doing things they should well, no, not no, no, be no. doing. This, this was just before that. All right, let me, let me set the scene here. This is before that all erupts, because what triggered our friend in California to hit his VCR button and to record the rest of the seven minutes we've got was the event that you saw that almost no one else has seen, which is in this tight zoom shot of an unnamed city somewhere in South America. But, but the thing is that the camera operator... This sets the scene. You've really got to set it, Richard. Uh, I hate to be telling you that of all people who will set scenes for an hour sometimes. But, um, my God, folks, there is no question about it. Whoever was operating the camera from the ground was absolutely interested in this city because he zoomed the camera in and stayed focused right on this city. We don't know what city or do we? Yes, we do. Oh, we do? Yeah, of course. Well, we didn't last time we talked. No, that's what science is. It moves on. <laughs> All right, so we now know what city Well, let me tell is. you what it is. It's Santiago, Chile. Santiago? And, oh, and, all right. And the little bright, and since you have a copy, you can now go look at it and match it with your maps. And there's a good friend of ours in New Mexico who helped us figure that out a couple of weeks ago. Um, anyway, so Valparaiso was down to the bottom right, and he's zooming in. Now, you have to understand, when you're 220 miles above the Earth, the Earth is a brilliant lit by moonlight on this shot carpet which stretches from horizon to horizon it's 180 degrees or almost 175 degrees because you're so close to it and it's so big that it the field of view literally blanks out half the sky beneath you or to the side of you depending upon your frame of reference right this city occupied a teeny teeny tiny tiny fraction of that whole night side moonlit pass until he zoomed in when he zooms in but it still is a tiny portion the reason i'm going to emphasize the tiny portion art and you know what's coming is because he zooms in he frames it right and then right over this city which is santiago which is 33.30 degrees south a number which will become very clear later in the morning as to its significance something zooms up, apparently up from that city, wigwagging, almost like a tadpole swimming, a brilliantly illuminated, leaving a vaporous, phosphorescent, plasma-like trail. No doubt about it. One major thing streaking so fast that the phosphor persistence problem of the camera, it's a low-light-level camera, could not, in fact, encompass the, the shape of it it left it as a kind of a, a moving, rapidly moving blur, which when you step through it frame by frame by frame, you can see that it's sashaying and wigwagging just from side to side. It and is it, astounding. And astounding. it's overly bright. It reverses uh, on this camera. When things get too bright, they go dark. 
so the center of it is dark because of the brightness of the image and then it's out of frame and the camera operator who is by the way not an astronaut in the shuttle this is all being commanded from Houston although there is some interesting new data that indicates that maybe the camera operator art was actually in Cheyenne Mountain it turns out now that the shuttle missions have a direct streaming video feed to the National Reconnaissance Office and Cheyenne Mountain. Really? And there is video of operators at consoles in Cheyenne Mountain controlling shuttle cameras on other shuttle flights. Oh, So my we're not God. quite sure who was running the camera that night. That seems to be one of the dark secrets that we have to uncover. One of the things that is not a mystery, though, is that whoever was operating the camera knew exactly what they wanted to focus on. Oh, yeah, because the field of view was so tiny by the time he zoomed in and the city almost filled the field of view. Yep. And then this thing appears, and if you just do the numbers, just randomly assume that a meteor goes through the field of view with that tight zoom shot. Mm-hmm. The odds are probably ten to 50,000 to one, just in terms of the total area of the night side of the Earth and that tiny field of view on which the, this object was captured. But that only set up the rest of the video that we're in the process of analyzing. Oh, I know. It's a, there's a lot there. And not only this, but that was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Because, A, the camera operator knew it was going to occur. There's no question about it. You yep. can't watch that and not know that's true. Number two, in my opinion, and I guess you can be fooled, but... This thing came from the ground, not from space. That, I think I concur, and I'll tell you why. If you go through it frame by frame, you'll see that the first light, was the first frame... At, is, what, it was down on Earth. It, well, it's very tiny. And then as the next frame, it gets bigger and bigger, and there's a perspective art. It's like you're looking down, right. Right. T- tangent to a long path. That indicates that the flight angle was up from somewhere over Santiago into space at a tangent angle to the atmosphere. The Santiago was about 1,500 miles from the camera when this all took place, so that shows you how far away and what the zoom angle was, was kind of roughly what it had to be. Again, the improbability of that being a random meteor where the operator zoomed in, set the shot, and <laughs> no. then it appears. No, no. No, no. No, I'm not buying it. So um, if uh, have you been able to conclude yet, Richard, um, what the speed of that object would have been? Is there any reference, any, any way to determine what the speed well, yeah, would have been? Well, yeah, I mean, I, we can do that. We just need to have time to sit down and do the numbers. And because the primary focus of tonight's, program is going to be a couple of other breakthroughs that have hit us between the eyes. We will do that when we do the integrated STS-80. We're in the process of putting all these data bits together. Let me tell you one other thing that is going to blow everybody's mind. When the main event begins, this is only a precursor. This is like prologue. Uh A few minutes later in real time, uh, you're still on the night side of the Earth. The spacecraft, the shuttle at 220 miles altitude over the Amazon jungle, enters sunlight. Dawn brakes for the shuttle. Right. And all hell breaks loose down below. Oh, boy, does it. For one thing, at the Terminator, there are all kinds of interesting thunderstorms. There's an intense concentration of electrical activity in the ITCZ, the Intertropical Convergence Zone, 
which is over that part of the Amazon uh, jungle at that time of year. And then there are these things that begin to enter, some of them slowly, some of them zipping by at warp nine, that appear so non-Newtonian, so non-ballistic, so non-natural, that everyone to whom this video now has been shown, Art, at NASA, at Houston, and we've had our people now quietly taking this from office to office to kind of get a feeling, a qualitative feeling. Right. Are we out to lunch or is this really as extraordinary as we think it is? What are they saying? Universally, good God, why didn't we see this? Um, I My jaw hit my chest. Um, I could not believe my eyes. I, I It is one of the most exciting things I have ever seen in my life. And is there any way, Richard... They're going to um, try and explain this away as ice crystals? Well, what's interesting is that the, the, the vocal NASA critics like Jim Oberg, um, who have tried to poo-poo the STS-48 video, despite you know my analysis and Mark Carlotto's and many. Matt Cashers, many others, yes. um, has been quite silent about STS-80. You know, Jim's no dummy. He looks at this and he knows that he can't explain. For one thing, ice crystals, I've never seen an ice crystal in zero jet gravity that could slow down and stop and then hang in a parking orbit off the port bow for several minutes and then decide to warp out at a leisurely velocity opposite to the original flight path direction. Right. Then reverse course and go back toward the horizon, toward the center of the Earth, and then decide finally just as you're approaching dawn down on Earth that, well, it, it really didn't want to do that, and it went back up toward the airglow. In other words, the non-Newtonian behavior, the non-ballistic nature, the non-orbital nature of what we're seeing completely puts the kibosh to this idea that we're looking at debris or ice crystals or anything else. Even if we did not have, which we do, companion video <clears throat> from 45 minutes earlier when the shuttle just east of New Zealand, sailed into night. In other words, uh, the, the Terminator. Exactly. And, and, and there was no debris, the there exact, were no ice crystals, no baloney going on. At the exact duplicate lighting, sunset as opposed to sunrise, um, nothing is going on. And we have the same light levels duplicated, the same sure. gain on the camera, the same right. field of view, everything. The, in fact, the same cameras. Same, exactly the same camera. Yeah. And the only thing that's changed is in 45 minutes later, all hell breaks loose at dawn over the Amazon jungle and can I have a drum roll now please we figured out the latitude over which all this takes place da 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 dum da dum 19.5 of course <laughs> what else um but Richard there is no way that somebody viewing this tape we've got to draw word pictures for people uh, there's no way anybody viewing this tape cannot come away with an understanding that the camera person, or wherever, whoever was in control, was obviously absolutely himself fascinated with, uh, or even directed to, um, capture these objects on videotape. And the city was without question. I mean, the guy went down and stayed on that city <laughs> until the event occurred. Mm-hmm. So, we've got something significant. When might the public see this? How far away? Well, you know the old Orson Welles thing for Paul Mazan. You know, we make no wine before it's time. 
Yeah. You can't really rush this analysis because you understand that the critics, the folks that are trying to discredit this right. and, and, and to basically you know, tell us we're all crazy, they will do their damnedest to try to make it go away by basically arm-waving and saying, oh, it's just debris and ice crystals. What I have assembled is a, is a first-class blue-ribbon team of ex-NASA, ex-aerospace engineers where I've worked with major companies. And I'm just going to list companies. These are not necessarily the companies that they worked for. Uh, you know, Boeing and McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed and Martin Marietta and whatever. We were putting together a broad field of people to look at this to write an analysis, to actually write a report, and to do some computer simulations so that we can do side-by-side split-screen and show people what Newtonian test particles look like and what these things look like. For instance, the one big object in the, in the, in the, in the main event, the one that enters uh, camera bottom right and appears in the shadow of the shuttle yes. and then pops into sunlight, yes. The one that then decides to slow down and kind of stop and park right. off the port bow for a while and then begins to drift backward with the clouds opposite its original motion and then drifts down back toward its original direction. That object, if you actually trace it in terms of position relative to the center of the Earth, is going from a high orbit, meaning at the shuttle or above, to a lower orbit, meaning below the shuttle in terms of its reference to the center of the Earth. Now, there is something in Celestial Mechanics 101, which is that high orbits take longer to go around something than low orbits. Mm-hmm. That's why the moon takes a month to go around the Earth, sure. and the shuttle takes 90 minutes. Sure. The moon is quarter million miles away, and the shuttle is 200 miles up. Right. Well, this object, the one I just described, in that position should leave the field of view art camera left. It should accelerate. It should move faster because it's going in a lower orbit. And it should drift out of sight to the bottom left of your screen. Instead, it stops dead, hovers for a while, and then moves opposite toward the right side of the screen at a diagonal uh, parallel to the air glow of the Earth. And that, of course, in terms of any orbital mechanics, is simply out of the question. Sure. All right. Unless it's a powered object. All right. Unless it's got a mind of its own, unless it's a vehicle not using rockets, but a very interesting form of electrogravitic propulsion. I agree with you. I agree with you. That is what is in this video. Now, uh, this now is the not... Fact, l- let me interrupt. The fact that it's at 19.5, mm-hmm. the fact that it's at dawn at 19.5, all of which are significant uh, items in the physical you know, model, the hyperdimensional physics model, then other things that we're going to get to when we get to the detail analysis tells me that if, as I said, the SDS-48 was the most amazing video I'd ever seen, this one is by far 10,000 times more amazing. Yes. And more important, it is provably amazing. All right, so I know that it's hard to give any estimate, but looking at weeks or months of research, before you're ready to give this to the people who will try to pick it apart, about how long do you think it might be? Just a guess. Well... As you know, um, there's a couple of items in the life of Enterprise and in my personal life that are going to intervene here in the next two or three weeks. Yes. And we'll get to those later in the morning. 
Are you going to really tell them what's going on? Well, we have to. It's part of the developing saga for the summer. All right. This is going to be a passenger seatbelt summer, and we're going to make some major predictions and lay them on the table after the turn of the hour. All right. The hour is about to turn, as does the worm, so stay right there. My guest, of course, is Richard C. Hoagland, and what is ahead will blow your mind. From the high desert, I'm Art Bell, and this is CBC. Presentation of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. All right. Um, Art, I would like to hear you on satellite radio, C-band. Which satellite and where are you? I have a 12-foot uh, satellite dish on the Big Island. No problem, Bob. Uh, we are on satellite F1 or C1, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, transponder number 5 with 5.8 wideband audio. We're also on uh, C5, but I'm not sure where exactly. I never can remember. Uh, WWTN, our affiliate Nashville, carries us and puts us up there. So you'll find us um, in a couple of uh, places, actually several on C-band. Now, back to Richard C. Hoagland. Richard? Yes, sir. Um all right, I'm really glad that you at least spilled a couple of the uh, STS-80 beans for everybody, because I couldn't hold it very much longer. It was killing me. <laughs> it's terrible to give a radio person a tape <laughs> and then say, you can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, well, it, it, it is worthwhile. It's worth waiting for. We have to do this right. The science has got to be there. The numbers have to be there. And, of course, it has to be the credibility of the proper people doing the analysis and the people that I've been able to choose, you know, lucky enough to have as part of our extended enterprise family are people who literally did everything on orbits, on rendezvous, on docking for the space agency for 30, 40 years. And if those people aren't believed, then nobody will be believed. So that's the caliber of people that we've involved and we have to wait until their, their, their work is done. I would like your comment on something. Um, CNN and the USA Today did a poll, a significant one the other day, a big one, in which it was revealed that 80%, that's 8 out of 10 of uh, the American people, believe the U.S. government is hiding information about contact with alien beings. That's 8 out of 10 people. Now, does that, does that tell you, Richard, that... Eight out of ten people believe there are alien beings, or eight out of ten people have ceased believing anything the government says? I think the latter. Um, as you know, tonight is a very important anniversary. <clears throat> this is the 25th anniversary, quarter of a century from the night when the Watergate Hotel office complex was broken into and the slide into the great primeval sea of public 
uh, belief and in, in the credibility of their government began a, an incredibly awful, tragic downward slide. Cynicism began. Cynicism, and the cynicism to the point where even when we're being told the truth, people won't believe it. Right. And this is the way you destroy a democracy. This is the way you destroy a republic where I people agree. have got to have uh, a, a contract with their duly elected officials, and when those officials say something for the public safety, for the public well-being, for the public good, they have to be believed. Now, they, the other side of the contract is the public officials have to be honest. Right. They have to not have hidden agendas. They have to actually mean what they say, follow through, and tell the truth, and treat their citizens as adults. So on both sides of that equation... Since Watergate, 25 years ago tonight, mm -hmm. that equation has broken down. And we are living with the sad and, and bitter consequences in all different directions, from normal, mundane government activities to much more important activities, such as we're going to be discussing this evening, because, unfortunately, I'm going to uh, be able to specifically lay out tonight some examples to come of where one faction of our current government, namely NASA, is one more time not going to tell us the truth. And what I'm going to do, Art, is very high risk for this investigation. I've decided, I've, I've thought about this long and hard, and I've decided we're going to put it on the line tonight. We're going to level with the American people who have been following this investigation, who have been following this this saga, this unfolding mystery story in which we're all involved. And because we have such specific data and such compelling evidence, and we're going to be able to lay it out and put it on the web, I thought I would be able to get it up tonight, but that will not happen. It will be tomorrow before the first of several installments of this new evidence and data uh, will be available for people on the Internet to, to peruse. Okay. Um, but we will be able to describe it tonight. There's nothing secret. It's just the logistics are following a little behind where I thought we would be. It, it really is sad that it is an anniversary where public confidence began to erode because this is a time when we need maximum confidence in leadership that really will lead. Not and only has it eroded, but I think um, it is quickening. I think that uh, the erosion is quickening. And... You're right. It will destroy uh, a representative democracy. Unless there is something to replace it. And the thing I want to talk about tonight is hope that the American people are bigger than the government. The American people really are sovereign. That's what this experiment was designed to be about. And by and large, the American people have pretty level heads, and they know what to do in a crisis. The crisis here is a crisis of confidence. We are being presented now with some awesome, stunning new information, which is confirming some of our most far-out models, and I will lay out what I mean by that. Right. It is important that we not lose our heads, that we, even if leadership has failed, as it demonstrably has on this issue, mm -hmm. the extraterrestrial question. You know, when you have shuttle video, which is downlinked and broadcast live, and all the folks in Houston can, can do when you try to get a flight plan for the mission is say, oh, we burned them all, we didn't have any use for them. <laughs> even, even the crew, even the astronauts didn't keep their flight plans. I mean, you know you got a big-time crisis of credibility. Well, I also have a, a memo um, suggesting that NASA has ordered that all email older than, I forget, two months or two years, I can't remember, um, be destroyed. They are in the process of destroying old email. Why? 
just keep things quietly hidden. And fortunately, those days are numbered. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We are going to predict tonight the circumstances and almost the day and the hour when the current Mars mission, the first one to arrive at Mars, Mars Pathfinder, is going to disappear, like its predecessor, Mars Observer. The same old gang is up to the same old tricks. Now, the difference this time is they're going to bring it back, and we're going to be able to predict roughly when that's going to happen. And then we're going to lay out an extraordinary set of scenarios with specific documentation that people can follow so they know we're not channeling this. This is coming from, <laughs> you know, the, the hard way, elbow grease, science, yes. data. And we're going to invite a lot of participation in helping us through this crisis of confidence. And the reason all this is going on is because there are some major connections and connect-the-dots going to happen this summer. This is a non-trivial summer. You're saying the Mars probe is going to disappear, Yep. and you're going to predict when it will disappear, Yep. and then it will reappear, Yep. and you're going to predict that. And NASA will look initially like enormous heroes, you know, valiant engineers laboring with the taxpayers' money, doing, you know, succeeding this time where they couldn't succeed with, with Mars observers. Are you going to tell us how you're able to make mm -hmm. this prediction? Of course. You know, I'm a process person. I lay out as much process. Sometimes on your show, I have completely bored people with process. I know. But what I'm going to do tonight is to kind of lay out an outline of what the rest of the evening or the rest of the morning is going to look like. Sure. <clears throat> so for those people who think that maybe they can get away by listening for a couple of hours and then going to sleep, ah, not tonight. <clears throat> no. Because what we're also going to do is to relate this disappearance and reappearance with the curious events occurring in the city of Phoenix in Arizona. Really? Beginning back last March with the strange apparition of something over the city, which to this point has been denied by all officialdom except for one lone elected official, uh, Francis Barwood. Who I had on the program. Who was attempting under very severe circumstances and against great odds to find out the truth on behalf of her constituents. All she did was ask for an investigation. And everything in the kitchen sink is being thrown at this woman. I know. Who simply wants to know, on behalf of the people who put her there on the city council. It turns out that that strange phenomenon in March and the events that have happened since are connected. And I will lay out how they can be extraordinarily connected to what NASA is going to do in the next few days with Mars Pathfinder. So it's coming quickly. It's coming very quickly. This is a plug for a certain book. <laughs> it's definitely a quickening art, all right? Uh -huh. Now, the other thing that we're going to do is to, is to delve into the history of the city of Phoenix itself. All right. Did anybody ever wonder why we have a city called Phoenix? Does anybody remember the derivation of the term Phoenix? Rising from the ashes. And connected to Egypt. Now, Richard, <laughs> here's another place where I've got to stop you, and I've got to ask you, and I'll do this the most, in the most gentle way that I can think to do it. I'm going to Egypt um, October 1st. I have been looking forward to going to Egypt. Mm -hmm. I'm going to Giza. I'm going to see the pyramids. Maybe. <laughs> now, 
you and I have talked about some things, and we know what's going on in Egypt, and I'm not sure the time is proper for us to tell everybody what's going on in Egypt, but it is so serious that I might have to stay on the ship. <laughs> well, let me tell you what. I might not be able yeah, to go, it, go, go ashore. Exactly. It, it might not be a bad idea, yes. Yeah. Now, now we're, we're slightly overstating this, all right? Uh, uh, not, uh, not in my opinion. Well, I'm not going with you. <laughs> Egypt is a very civilized country. There are some remarkable people in Egypt who really care about history, about communication, about legacies. Yes. And then there is, like in NASA, there appears to be another group who have very consciously and very dedicatedly, you know, confused a lot of people and put out a lot of smoke and mirrors to keep truth from being found out regarding the legacy of what those pyramids represent and their connection not only to our own ancient antiquity and who we are, far older than most history books will give credence to, but also an intimate connection to NASA, which we have discussed on previous programs. Mm -hmm. And in future, this connection to the Mars Pathfinder mission Mars itself. Mm -hmm. And as I just said, an also very lineal and understandable connection to this unique American city in the southwest tonight known as Phoenix. And what we're going to do in the next few weeks when certain things are, are politically solved, we're in the process of furious behind-the-scenes negotiations even as we speak, we're going to be able to, I think, reveal some of the turgid mysteries and background story of the so-called Shore Expedition, this expedition financed by the uh, millionaire um, industrialist here in, in New York City Mr. Shore. that put a number of people and cameras and documentarians and geologists and all that on the ground in Egypt mm -hmm. uh, under the aegis of, of the Antiquities uh, Council and we're going to be able to talk about some of the things that folks have not wanted us to talk about for a long time. And I have some news on this front to make myself, which is um, you know that Dr. Shore had been working in, in some cooperation with ARE, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, the so-called Casey Foundation. Yes. And Graham Hancock and Robert Bavall had made accusations regarding undue influence of ARE with the Shore uh, expedition to Egypt and with the Egyptian uh, Antiquities Council and decisions being made on the plateau and all that. And let us be clear, all right, uh, this civilized nation, um, which has as the head of the Antiquities uh, Department, uh, Mr. Zahi Hawass. Actually, I've... no, 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 no. Zahi is not head of the Antiquities. He would like to be this, this, this fall. There is an well, election and he is running. All right, running Giza. He is head of the Giza Plateau. Right, running Giza, running Giza. All right. That's right. Um, in response to what was said uh, by Baval and Hancock. Mr. Dean is the head of the, of the Antiquities Council, I believe. Uh, Zahi uh, suggested that should they return to that area, he would throw them in a pit well, no, wait a minute. Cut their heads off, throw them in a pit, and urinate on the remains. Well, obviously he doesn't speak for Egypt. I mean, this is one person's opinion, and again, we don't have, I don't have ground truth that that in fact occurred. That, that is a rumor that Robert was told by someone on a taxi ride to the airport. So 
we should not inflame passions. There is enough hard data. The specific thing, the point I want to make is because of the of the strangeness of this subject, the fact mm-hmm. that things just don't add up. Excuses keep being made for why logical conclusion of scientific investigation is never consummated. There's an interesting history of Ganton Brink and the door. Remember the door? The door, up, yes. Up behind the, uh, at, at the 180 feet up the the uh, sloping shaft from this the was a, chamber. This is a metallic door. No, no, no. It's a stone door with two metallic stone? copper right. handles, All one right. of which has fallen off, intensely right. corroded. Right. That was seen by a little robot designed by a Germaneer named Rudolf Gantenbrink. Robot camera. Up, crawl up the shaft on little t- tractor treads. Right. And spotted with this closed circuit camera, this door, uh, four, I'm sorry, eight inch wide door and an eight inch wide shaft extending up at about a 35, 40 degree angle from the Queen's Chamber, hundreds of feet up through the pyramid, about 180 feet. Yes. And there was a little crack on the bottom right hand side of the door. Well, Years ago, this is 91, I believe, obviously the next thing would have been to let Mr. Gantenbrink design an optical fiber probe to put under the crack, through the door, and see what was behind it. You bet. Instead, Zahi Hawass and people around him said no. There have been other expeditions, French, Japanese, and German over the years, where they found chambers you know, uh, on the north side of the Queen's Chamber. They found radioactive sand in some of those chambers they found really? other uh, I, I have never heard that radioactive radioactive sand, sand. yes um, all these things are found by foreign experts and technologists invited by the Antiquities Council to to do this under license to the Egyptian government and then just on the eve of unveiling what is causing these mysteries, why these chambers are there, what's behind the door. These guys, to a man, are kicked out, and the lid comes down, and you never get to find out what's going on. So, what, what, you so in other words, uh, to speak clearly, what appears to be going on is uh, Egypt um, or Zahi uh, will invite people with money in to do very expensive research and just at the very moment when they are prepared to culminate that research with a finding or a dig, they're booted out. They're that appears, used. That appears to be the pattern. Now, there appears to be a breakthrough where some of the most interesting secrets which have been uncovered as part of these latest expeditions may, in fact, be revealed. And, in fact, it's even stronger. There's a strong indication, Art, that they may be revealed on your show and they may be revealed through your good offices, all right? Um, That I cannot firmly say tonight. Negotiations are intensely underway in the background. Attorneys are being consulted. Things are going on. This is non-trivial. Yeah, very non-trivial. If we reveal reveal what's going on, uh, Richard, I think uh, yourself and myself... We're going to be persona non grata in in Egypt, and and it, it it may be worse than that. Would you agree with that? That's the downside. The upside <laughs> is that the Art Bell audience, as politically astute as it has demonstrated it now is, can in fact strike a major blow for openness and democracy, and maybe that's what we're here for. Healing. And we'll be right back. All right.
Wyatt, about to go back to Richard C. Hoagland. And again, what's going on in Giza? We know what's going on in Giza. Uh, and the reason that you cannot be told fully at this moment what's going on in Giza is because there are attorneys, lawsuits, that sort of thing uh, that are pending as a result of this. So until the legal entanglements uh, get sufficiently untangled that we feel we can tell you what's going on, we can't. And I know that is, for a lot of you, very frustrating. Uh, but this is so serious, so very serious, that if and when we reveal it, um, I believe there will be some danger. <laughs> to those who have revealed it. Uh, but as I said, uh, life is short, and, and what the hell, the truth is the truth. And if you don't follow it, then uh, what good are you? It's important, Art, to keep focus on the big picture here. It's like if, if someone is running a number on the Western world, as they've been running a number on Americans vis-a-vis -vis the real space program, right? and you find a connection, which is this Orion symbolism from NASA, you know, which was the overall symbol of Apollo itself. Sure. And then you find NASA people uh, who, in fact, then go on to become very esteemed uh, members of the uh, cabinet, actually, at the, at the secretariat level of the president of Egypt. Right. And you find this confluence of pattern and mythology moving in the same direction, meaning a kind of an ancient future, a reaching back to the past through going out to the far distant future and exploring literally another world, i.e. Mars, you got to say to yourself, why would they all be doing this unless it was not of overwhelming and overriding importance? Now, fortunately, because of the way science works, you know, which is you don't have to have a, an authority figure to tell you the truth. You can figure it out for yourself if you know how to apply the process. Um, we have been able to make remarkable headway in several different directions in parallel. And what we're going to be able to do, not tonight, but in the next few weeks, week or two maybe, at that close, is bring them together. In fact, the timing is probably going to be that just about the time that Pathfinder disappears. We're going to be able to come on with some of the key players on the Egypt story to show a part of why it's disappeared and why it will come back, that what will, their agenda that, is. That will be a program, if we're able to do it, that will rock the foundations of the world. Well, if this prediction that I'm going to lay out tonight comes to pass, an awful lot of people are going to ask, how the heck do we know? I hope they do that. I hope they examine carefully what we're going to put on the web in terms of the evidence, in terms of the overwhelming compelling evidence that this almost, like an act of God, has to happen. This is the end of side one. Back to the best of Art Bell. From the Kingdom of Nye, Coast to Coast AM continues with Art Bell. Even before we tell the story, Richard, let me ask you this. The fact that we're about to make it public, this prediction, mm -hmm. uh, will the fact of making it public possibly change what you are predicting will occur? That's an excellent question and something we've given a lot of thought to. And under normal circumstances, I would say it might. Um, 
if we were dealing with something at the at the trivial level of national security or you know the the, the cloak and dagger games between east and west and all that yes but in fact we're dealing with people and let me let me pick my words carefully here we're dealing with people deep inside the space agency deep inside the egyptian you know uh, antiquities group yes who literally believe they are operating on a higher calling that this pattern the their actions are are mandated by no less than god herself or himself <laughs> i should tell my audience by the way that this is not just richard hoagland telling me these things i have talked to some of these individuals myself so i know uh what he is saying to be true and i you know i can't back it further than that but i have had conversations that verify what you're saying right now or alluding to is true so if that's true if they really believe and i'm 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 i'm, I'm putting the most optimistic uh spin on this I'm, I'm i'm not saying this is a bad thing i'm just saying that it's different than what we in the western secular community certainly in the government project dealing with taxpayers money and science would imagine would be going on but if if this small group have been driving the system covertly, deftly, manipulating here, moving things there, getting calculations done over there that had nothing to do with science, but in fact are fulfilling this grand yes. celestial cosmological vision that they've held, then, you know, Dick Hogan sitting on the radio telling them what's going to happen makes not one tinker's damn. They can't change it because God would be pissed. And they really believe it. Now, this is kind of equivalent to some of the actions of, you know, people like McVeigh and others who feel they have such a high calling that nothing stands in their way. Mm -hmm. That level of fanaticism we have seen the world over. And we know that it is not deterred by trivial actions. It is, it is in service to something that the progenitors think is much bigger. I am counting on that. I am counting on that the 30-year pattern we have uncovered, that we have now exquisitely detailed and will lay out for everyone to examine and critique, is of such an overwhelming nature and has been created for such magnificent you know, grand objectives in their own mind that nothing as trivial as you know, predicting part of it is going to make a difference. If that's true, and I'm kind of putting 15 years of this investigation on the line that it is true, then it also is a means to us to figure out what the hell is really going on and how we can change what they think is going to happen to serve all of humankind, not just an elect elite few. So what you're saying is uh, you are putting it all on the line, and you're saying this is so big that no radio show, no prediction by Richard Hoagland, uh, will will change the course of events, right? I don't think so, and we're going to find out. And I'm that confident in the data. You know, again, we're not doing this with you know magicians in the back room. Although I do, I must say that we've had some interesting help in putting this analysis together. What's going to happen? We've had in the last couple three weeks some former NSA officials really come to us provide us with invaluable counsel and specific information and analyses that has been parallel 
to our own analyses. I've also reached out and I've, 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 you know, called in some favors for some other analysts that use techniques that, that are very different than those that we use. Mainly, they're not using numbers, they're not using um, the metonymic methods of science and prediction that we, you know, try to bring to this this evidence. And what you're going to hear tonight is the distillation of the best thinking of this whole group. When I talk about the Enterprise mission, I, I really want to emphasize, Art, it's not just me sitting here on the radio. Right. I am a vocal person. I can put words one after the other when I have enough coffee in me. We've noticed. And But what I really am representing is a family of concern and interest and expertise which is growing by the day, by the hour, as more and more people figure out that we're on to something and they want to lend their expertise to helping find out the truth. And as with any system, it is greater than the sum of the parts. Everyone who participated in this I want to thank because without all of the discussion and all of the counsel and all of the work that everyone put in, I wouldn't be able to sit here confidently tonight, you know, with my friend Art, and lay out for several million people what is going to happen and have a reasonable chance of not looking like a damn fool. If you're, if you're right, weeks. Richard, if you're right, isn't it dangerous for you? No, not at all. No, no, no. That isn't even, it's not even in the equation. It doesn't even cross my mind. We have so transcended that trivial nonsense. This is for big stakes. This is for the heart and soul of humankind. I know. This is for, this is for a grand vision on both sides, be it the light or the dark. And one person is not important enough to even be viewed as a problem. That's the saving grace here. The people we're dealing with are so incredibly insulated from the democratic ideal, from the idea that individual people, the common man, can affect change and the future and their own destiny, that they are beyond thinking that we matter. And that is the exquisite insurance that we possess because they don't think this will matter and count at all. And it's up to the Americans listening to my voice to show them that that's not quite true. All right. Um, give us a schedule of Pathfinder. In other words, um, I recall when it was launched, when is it due to arrive, let me and, start. What, and what is it supposed to do when it gets okay, there? Okay, let me start with the launch, and then I'm, I'm going to do this back and forth tonight so we lay the proper foundation. Again, as with any good legal case, sure. you've got to have the right foundation to understand the magnitude of the data that we are presenting. The spacecraft was launched on December 4th. Its original launch date was supposed to be December 2nd. Right. There was a severe weather front that swept down through... Uh, Florida that night, you may remember. I remember. I was supposed to be there. Uh, NASA decided otherwise. They pulled my credentials. I recall. So I could not be there. Despite our best efforts. Yep. Well, in those days, I mean, Art Bell was... Who, who were they to reckon with Art Bell? And now, of course, that's changed, right? When you got those those uh, that, that letter from the guys at headquarters, it kind of tickled me because the way they were dismissing the Art Bell audience even a few months ago was not the tone of that letter a few weeks ago. That is true. And it's all due to the smartness of the American people and their ability to let these people know that they care. Anyway, on December 4th, the spacecraft was launched. If it had been launched on the 3rd, which was the night bracketed by the 2nd and the 4th, Mars, if you'd been standing at the Cape like I intended to do and 
able to speak on live camera like I was uh, you know, wanting to do, I would have been able to point out across the launch pad to Mars rising over the darkened uh, Atlantic Ocean with a crescent moon hanging up in the sky just above it. And I would have been able to announce that as that spacecraft lifted off, Mars was at 19.5 degrees above the Cape Canaveral horizon in the constellation of Leo. Now, why is any of that important? Well, 19.5, of course, is the key number that comes out of this tetrahedral hyperdimensional decoding that we have been conducting Correct. on the ruins for yes. so many years now. The Leo part is equally interesting because, as you may or may not know, we have now figured out that back years ago, almost 20 years ago, when Viking landed on Mars and the Viking orbiters were sweeping over and over and over the Martian terrain. Right. On July 25th, at about 3-something in the afternoon, when the Viking camera on Orbiter A looked down and snapped the picture of Sidonia that we all see on our website and on your website and many other websites now around the world, that picture was taken when the face on Mars was looking at Leo above the horizon the counterpart of the so-called Martian Sphinx. If you hearken back to your Egyptian mythology, the Sphinx on Earth, Ahorum Akati, is Horus of the horizon. And its counterpart in the sky is the constellation of Leo the lion. And this is from the work of Hancock and Baval and many, many, many others. Yes. So that symbology is very important because the Sphinx on Earth is a, is a compilation of two figures. The, the hominid, the man, and the feline, the lion. It turns out that the space on Mars at Sidonia is a compilation of two figures. The left half is hominid, man-like, and the right half is lion-esque, feline. So you have this symbology of two worlds. You have the connection in the geometry, the latitudes of Sidonia, the face, and the latitudes of the Sphinx on Earth uh, at, at Giza, are related through this very elegant little equation. The tangent of one is the cosine of the other. Mm -hmm. So you have all these inter interconnections. Well, it turned out that the night that Pathfinder left this planet, within a few fractions of a degree, because of the slippage of that one night, Mars was at 19.5 in Leo, the personification of Sidonia. Uh, with Pathfinder headed for Mars in the pre-dawn darkness of Cape Canaveral. The other thing you need to know to complete this picture is that Leo is the embodiment of Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona. Because the rebirth, the sun on the horizon, is the symbolic Phoenix, the new day being born from the ashes of the old. So these arcane symbolisms now string through this story, and we'll, we'll, we'll you know, talk about them and bring them up as they are appropriate from time to time. The spacecraft then left on a journey of seven months, all right? All right. Normal journeys to Mars take almost a year. This was an ultra, ultra, ultra fast mission. In fact, it's so fast that about two-thirds of the way out, it passed in the night, in the dark, a few million miles away, the previous spacecraft, which had been launched in November, where I actually did get to witness it, the Mars Surveyor, the replacement for Mars uh, Mars Observer. How did which, it do that? Because it was going faster. 
and it's following a shorter arc. The the, uh, the uh, Pathfinder spacecraft weighs less, you know, less mass than the Surveyor spacecraft. Mm-hmm. The Surveyor spacecraft weighs about 2,000 pounds, and I think Pathfinder is down around 600 or 800, something like that. Uh-huh. So that literally, with the same amount of rocket fuel, you can get it going faster, and you can kind of cut the cord. It's a shorter arc to get to Mars. Okay. Um, on on the on the on the what they call I think a Type Two trajectory. Anyway, they 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 passed each other in the night out there, and then Pathfinder launched second, will arrive first, and the arrival date, as we have been told over and over and over again, is supposed to be July fourth, nineteen ninety seven. Right. Bill Clinton told us this. Bob Dole told us this. Right. You know the news media are telling us this. NASA is telling us this. The NASA website at the Ames Research Center, the Pathfinder website, that's telling us this. In fact, the the website is, is very revealing because a lot of the data that we're going to lay out tonight in terms of the disappearance of Pathfinder is information gleaned directly and indirectly from NASA's own website. The neat thing now is that back in the days when I was covering space with Cronkite and all that, you would go to these NASA centers and you would say, pretty please, pretty please, can I have some data, please, please, please? And they would look at you kind of scornfully and say, that's not for public release. Hmm. Now, because of the web and because most of the system is honest, I mean, most of the engineers, most of these men and women really believe they're serving the best and the brightest and the most honored traditions of the United States of America. And so with this incredible tool, the World Wide Web, they could not wait to put all this wonderful information out electronically all over the world. So... The guys that have a hidden agenda, that are manipulating the system and trying to pull off different things than most of NASA even knows about, they're having a more difficult time because now we can read the tea leaves, as it were, in this case the numbers, in this case the Doppler plots and the the, the mid-course maneuvers and all that, and we can discern a pattern that even the guys inside the system could not discern in years before because they wouldn't have access to the paperwork. So the web is doing what it's supposed to do. It's democratizing the process, Art. Sure. Let's hear it for the World Wide Web. (laughs) I make a lot of use of it. I love the web. Well, it's really this growing, interlinked, myriad, multiple consciousness of all mankind. It's Bucky Fuller's ultimate uh, personification when he called the computer the great equalizer of of the 80s. And his metaphor was with the 1880s when the cult peacemaker <laughs> was the great equalizer. Yes. Now the personal computer I allows us guys to be equal to them guys mm-hmm. because we can use it to figure them out. So we've, we've done that. So in seven months, this spacecraft, Pathfinder, leaving in December 4th, is supposed to arrive at Mars. Now, seven itself is kind of interesting. It's tetrahedral. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I mean by that? If you take a tetrahedron... All right, we're not going to have time for this. We're approaching the top of the hour. Um, so we've got a couple of things to do, and when we come back, we will, uh, we will talk in detail about your prediction and why you're saying this will happen. So, Richard, stay right where you are. We will return. All right? Okay. All right. We'll be back. There's a lot to hear, and it's coming up next. You're listening to the CBC Radio Network. I'm Art Bell. Pretty woman walking down the street. Pretty woman, the 
A few of us at the network uh, just want to dedicate this little song to you on this uh, special day. Steve Burgess from Affiliate Relations, and uh, for me and all the rest of the staff here, we want to wish you a very happy birthday. Brian Saylor. Holly Marple. Arthur. Tim Austin. Happy birthday to you, big guy. John Newman. Lisa Lyon. Alex Joy. Karen Edding. Bob Just. Ann Fredenberg. Thomas West. Donna. Customer Service. Mike Stafford. Stephanie Smith. Vicki Eastwood. Jose Corona. Omar Corona. Marcelo Corona. Miley Reed. And here's one you haven't heard. Verlin Beard. Kathy Pear. Jennifer Bake. Jim Oakes. Yuta Sensgod. Julian Hudson. Summer Thompson. Roger Daniels. Valerie Knight. Marvin Pangburn. Yuta Sensgod. David Shortreed. Ellen Masters. Delani Conrad. Hey, Art, happy birthday to you. Just to show you how sophomoric this staff can be. This is what they actually wanted me to recite to you. A poem. <clears throat> Excuse me. Roses are red, violets are blue. Some folks are young, but you're 52. Diligently worked on by the staff of uh, your network here. Never mind, you and I share that esteemed age, and uh, it's a real good one. Arthur, for me, Alan Corbett, president of Chancellor Broadcasting and Talk Radio Network, happy birthday to you and uh, many, many, many more. All the best, buddy. Hey, Art, this is the regular guy here, and I uh, have been informed that now you have, well, become older than dirt. As a matter of fact, the rumor in the desert, Art, I don't know if your wife's spreading it a little more or what, but the rumor is you're not as good as you once were, but you're as good once as you ever were. Hey, happy birthday. This is Dave Dawson, and to the absolute owner of Nighttime Radio, Art Bell. Happy birthday, Art. Listening to Art Bell is good for your health. It's high in fiber and low in fat. Hi, I'm Deborah Ray from Here's to Your Health, wishing Art Bell the happiest and the healthiest of birthdays. Keep up the good work, Art. Hi, Art. This is Ed Nowicki, host of American Crime Line. I want to wish you a happy birthday. I would have sang you happy birthday, but if you ever heard me sing, that's present enough that I didn't sing. Happy birthday, Art. Art, this is your old buddy Elvis, and uh, I've listened to your show quite a lot there, and uh, I have a few of them uh, laughing 
after death experiences I'd like to talk to you about. Art, happy birthday. This is your offstage announcer, Ross Mitchell in Reno, and it seems as though you have more than one birthday for Adam. Or maybe it's just that celebrating your birthday involves so many people in so many markets. I just hope I look as young as you do when I get to be that age. Not to imply that you're old, Art, but if watching Jurassic Park Lost World reminds you of your childhood, then maybe you should start with the calcium supplements. And very possibly the real reason your program now starts an hour earlier is because you just can't stay up as late as you once did. Art, many happy returns. Hi, Art. Happy 52nd and a hundred more. Love ya, Linda. Hello, Art. It's Brian Jennings, the Super Talk Radio Consultant Inc. guy. And uh, just happy birthday. Many, many, many great wishes to you because uh, I've known you for a number of years. Uh, we've put you on over 20 stations that I consult and work with in their programming departments. And frankly, if I had 120 stations, I would put you on all of them. Uh, you're terrific. You've really uh, lit up the night, so to speak, coast to coast. Happy birthday. Take care now. Hi, you old artichoke from the sunny shores of far west Australia. This is your older Texan friend and his lady wishing you well for your 52nd birthday. We tried to arrange an earthquake for you, but, well, we could only arrange some bad weather. Sorry. Anyway, from Stan and Holly, happy birthday. Live long and prosper. It's Michael Horn from Cusco, and I just wanted to wish my good friend Abel a very happy birthday, and I hope all his wishes come true. Art, it's Brad Steiger. Happy birthday. And just remember, buddy, you're not getting older, you're getting better. Hi, Art Bell. This is Sherry Hansen Steiger wishing you a very, very blessed and happy birthday. Happy birthday, Art. This is David Masters. And it's amazing that you've lived as long as you have, staying up all night the way you do, but uh, I guess that's why Coast to Coast AM is the hottest overnight radio show in America. Hi, Trey. Your listeners may not know you by this name, but this is Dad, and here it is again. Another birthday, and may you have had and may you have, whichever the case may be, the happiest and happiest of all, and from Ricky, too. Hey, Art. It's Bryce Abel. Hey, listen, since Majestic 12 forced NBC to cancel Dark Skies, had to go underground. I mean, I'm sure you know what I mean. After all, you're out there hiding in the desert, right? Anyway, I'm calling from a payphone right now, so I can't stay on long. Their tracers are so good these days, you got less than 30 seconds, and then they're on you like a cheap black suit and shade. So here's the message. Happy birthday, Art. I mean, enjoy it while you can, man, because when they come after you, you got no time for cake or blowing out candles. Party on, Art. I gotta go. Art, it's Andy Ludlam from KABC in Los Angeles. Happy birthday from all of us here in L.A. You already got your present last month. That's when you got your best ratings ever and continued with the number one overnight show in Los Angeles. Happy birthday and continued success, Art. Hey, Art Bell. This is Nancy Zentak calling you from Planet Radio WGST in Atlanta, Georgia. And I have to say, welcome to our planet. We dig having your wild weirdness on on overnight. And the response has been great. Happy, happy birthday. From the great city by the bay, home of the Golden Gate Bridge, 
Fisherman's Wharf, and more unusual people than reside on most planets in this universe. This is Jack Swanson, Program Director at KSFO San Francisco. All of us at KSFO and all of us in Northern California wish you, Art, a happy birthday and many, many more. Art, this is Sherry Sawyer at one of your new affiliates, WREC Radio in Memphis, and we're wishing you a very, very happy birthday. This is Tony Miner, Program Director of Hot Talk 570 KVI in Seattle. Art, you are nighttime radio, period, in the Seattle area and in the whole Puget Sound region. On behalf of the whole KVI staff, uh, let me wish you a very happy birthday and a great broadcast year. This is Randall Bloomquist at WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina. Happy birthday, Art. You're the king of overnight talk in the southeast. Art. Rich Carey here, 570 wins, WHNZ in Tampa Bay, Florida. My friend, I don't know if you live on the edge, but your show is right on. Thanks for great radio and happy birthday. And we dig your gig. Happy birthday, Art, from Keith, your webmeister. May you have a million hits a day and no visits from the government. Uh, hold on a minute. This is Merle Haggard, uh, the only one I know of uh, that sings country music and listens to the Art Bell Show. And uh, I want to say uh, happy birthday to you. I understand you're going to be uh, 52. That's a wonderful age. I wish I could be 52 again. Uh, but anyway, from everybody in my camp, we want to say happy birthday to Art Bell. Hey there, Art Bell. This is your friend Michael Harrison, editor of Talkers Magazine, the trade publication in talk radio, and uh, also occasional uh, weekend broadcaster on the talk radio countdown show heard across the nation. Taking this opportunity to wish you a very happy birthday. And uh, certainly also to congratulate you on, according to our research, being the number four most listened to talk show host in America. And, uh, of course, uh, you are getting kind of old. And if you're able to hang in there, maybe soon you'll be number three, two, and one. But uh, you're definitely a testimony to uh, how people can continue to live productive lives into their senior years. Nevertheless, I'm only kidding. Best wishes to you. Continued success and happy birthday, Art. This is Bob Crane from Sea Crane Company. Art, happy 52nd birthday. Uh, this is a significant event indeed, and a few significant thoughts come to mind, which is a significant event in itself sometimes. Area 51 is 52 miles away, and there are 52 weeks until your next birthday. And select attendants are on sale tonight for $52. Seriously. Have a happy birthday from all of us here at Seacrane Company, and thanks. Hi, Art. It's Whitley. I want to wish you a happy 413th birthday, or whatever it is, maybe the 412th. Many happy returns of the day, and I will wish you a happy birthday on behalf of Victor, too. But this is not and never has been Victor. Art, this is Father Malachi Martin sending you birthday greetings. Art, this is your birthday. And I do feel, as one man to another, that you have merited great praise and great gratitude from people like me, guests you have had on your show, how much pleasure you gave them besides giving them the opportunity to speak to a very wide audience, which you have created by your skill as a broadcaster. And so, congratulations. May you live and thrive for decades and decades to come. Amen. Amen. Hey, wait, Art. There's uh, one more thing from me, little Tony Howell. 
we had to do that one more time. That was uh, such a production. Thank you all. Uh, people don't understand until moments like this how many people are behind uh, my voice. In other words, how many people get the job done, get it from here to there, do the sales, do the traffic, do the uh, affiliate relations, do all the rest of it, and, uh, of course, 360 plus radio stations out there that carry the program, and we only had a small sampling of uh, some of the representatives from those. So thank you all, and um, I guess I am old as dirt. <laughs> old as dirt. Ish. Listen, we've got Richard C. Hoagland here, and we are about to get into some very, very serious information. In the first hour, we discussed STS-80, and uh, I didn't think we were going to get to do that, but by gosh, Richard came across and uh, has told us some of the incredible details of the STS-80 videotape. Now we are about to enter an area that is uh, very sensitive indeed. We discussed Egypt and how sensitive that is and the information that we are going to be releasing soon. And we're beginning to talk about something that is going to blow your mind. Richard is going to predict that Mars Pathfinder will be lost. He is going to predict the date it will be lost, and then the date it will be again found, and why. That's what's coming up. Stay right where you are. All right. Mars Pathfinder was launched December 4th. It is due to arrive in the vicinity of Mars July 4th of this year. July 4th, Independence Day. Interesting day, huh? Richard C. Hoagland is predicting Mars Pathfinder will mysteriously, or not so, disappear and then reappear. He's got his neck out a million miles. He has not yet given us the dates when this will occur. Everybody is always saying of uh, prophets and other people I have on the show, damn it, give us something in the short term you think is going to happen, you know, pinning people down. Uh, Richard C. Hoagland is not a prophet. He is a scientist. And so he's basing this prediction not on something gleaned by Chen or some voice that came to him in the night, but by good, hard science. Richard, when is Mars Pathfinder going to disappear? Um, within the next two or three days. Really? Yep. That's why I wanted to do this tonight. I understand. <laughs> two or three days? My, my. The, the clock starts running on the 19th, which is two nights from now. Right. And the reason it starts running is the 19th is the last announced upload for the onboard computers for the next mid-course correction that the spacecraft requires. Uh -huh. There's a five-day interval between the time they upload the data to the time they execute the program on board the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And that execution date is, if you go to the NASA Ames website for Pathfinder, August, uh, August, uh, June 24th. And if you back time it, that means the 19th of, of June, a couple nights from now, is the last data that they will accumulate before they make their final course correction uh, uplink. Now, this is, this is very complicated to do on radio without the pictures, so please hang, hang with us, all right? The reason that we firmly believe that this thing has to disappear is because what we have found in our own analyses 
going now back through NASA's entire database to the, before the first landings on the moon, mm -hmm. is that the the pathfinder pattern, the the the, the stellar cartography, if if you will, which is the positions of key objects in the sky over the landing site on Mars does not conform on the 4th to the pattern that we have observed in every other NASA mission bar just a couple going back these 30 years. We have found and we've laid out on our website, you know, which is www.enterprisemission.com or you can reach it through www.artbell.com. Mm -hmm. We have found that there has been this astonishing and secret adherence to this so-called Egyptian, Orion, Osiris, Sirius pattern. Right. And, and because it was launched late, there's going to have to be a built-in delay. Am I correct? No. No. When no. it was launched late, they could, they could make it up with what they call a mid-course. And so that was not the reason it would be delayed. Okay. So in fact, they, uh, they have about 93 kilograms, which is what, uh, almost 200 pounds of fuel on board, mm -hmm. which is an extraordinary amount of fuel for this little thing, given that they're not going to be using it to slow down. Pathfinder, unlike any previous mission we have sent anywhere in the solar system, uh, except for the Galileo probe into Jupiter, is not going to slow down when it gets to Mars. It's not going to go into orbit. It's not going to fire retro rockets. It's going to literally slam at over 15,000 miles an hour into the Martian atmosphere and will use a heat shield and the braking effect of friction with that atmosphere to basically slow down. And from the time it enters the atmosphere, which is called entry interface, which is about 100,000 feet over the Martian surface, to touchdown, bouncing on those little rubber bags, those air-filled or nitrogen-filled baggies yes. that it uh, surrounds the spacecraft, it will literally come from 100,000 feet down to the surface in four minutes. Wow. I, oh, yeah. I didn't know any of this. That's absolutely amazing. So they're going to thing slam in much the way... Like a rifle bullet. That's amazing. It's got, a big, it's got a heat shield, and the heat shield will take out a major heat pulse and slow it down. It then has parachutes, a uh, ring sail parachute. It fires those with, with squibs and pops those parachutes at, uh, I think it's 30,000, 40,000 feet, something like that. Fascinating. Hold, hold tight, Richard. Uh, we used up most of this half hour with my birthday. That's oh, over now. Birthday my birthday is over. Up. Yeah, I know. By the way, you Are... have a present from Enterprise en route. All right. We'll be, we'll be right back. Back now to Richard C. Hoagland. Richard, um, let's get to it. You're saying Mars Pathfinder is going to disappear. It will disappear two or three days or so from now, uh -huh. and then will magically be found by NASA uh, all of a sudden again. Let's get to it. Um, why does it have to disappear? <clears throat> okay. The disappear part is, is actually not a primary prediction. It's, it's secondary. The problem is there's no other way I can... I can allow for the divergence between what they plan to do and what they currently say they are doing. Right. So the only way to cover the disparity is it has to go away. And then it has to come back magically or through their enormous efforts. And in that coming back, 
technical gobbledygook will be put out to give them a plausible cover, a plausible reason to do what they intended to do all along, mm-hmm. but haven't told us. So as part of this process, it's got to go away for a while. And it has to go away not only from us, but from also the honest folks at JPL who would say, what the hell is going on here if they saw what was going to happen on their live screens you know, at uh, the NASA Mission Control. Why, Richard? Why okay. does it have to go away? Okay, we've got to do this carefully so people don't lose us here. All right. We have found this incredible, robust pattern that links Osiris, Orion, right. Sirius, Egypt, Leo, the central mythos of, of the Egyptian cosmology, you know, going back to the beginning of the space program. We found it in Apollo. We actually now traced it all the way back through the, the first Mercury mission. Alan Shepard was launched from Cape Canaveral on right. the morning of May 5th, according to the same pattern, all right? Um, when I was told, when, when I saw that they were landing Pathfinder on Mars on July 4th, the first thing I did was to, you know, boot up my favorite computer program for stellar cartography, which is Redshift. Right. And I ran the sim for the landing site. Now, the, the most suspicious part of the announcement was that they're landing at 19.5 degrees. You knew that? Yes. On Mars. I recall that, yes. They launched when Mars was at 19.5. Right. Or as close to it as they could get, given the problem they had the night before. If they'd launched when they wanted to, it would have been exactly at 19.5. Right. That was really kind of weird. The spacecraft itself is a tetrahedral spacecraft. It's the first one we've ever put into space. It literally looks like a tetrahedron. You know, four sides, uh, four corners, 60-degree angles, inside of which is the electronics, you know, the cameras and the other gadgets, and attached to one side of the tetrahedral panels that Mm -hmm. open up when it lands is this little 22-pound rover with two TV cameras, color, and some other gadgets on it. Right, right. right. When the thing goes from under 1,000 feet up down to the, the surface, down to the desert in that four minutes, and after the parachutes are popped and after the retro rockets briefly fire, and it then free falls the last, uh, let me look at my graph here, it free falls from, oh, what is it, um, 30 meters up, all right, which is what, 90 feet, 100 feet. Right. It bounces on these bags, these airbags that are surrounding it, and bounces and bounces and bounces, and they're claiming that it will take probably um, five or six minutes to stop bouncing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. right. Uh, It's not retro rockets like Viking. This thing is literally surrounded by very heavy Dacron baggies filled with nitrogen that are explosively filled after it separates from the parachute. It'd be, fun to, it'd be kind of fun to see, actually. What? I said it'd be kind of fun to see, actually. Oh, it'd be incredible. And there are, there, are, there are simulations on the NASA website. You can actually play the AVI files and see what they've They've actually dropped this thing in the, in, the, uh, in the hangars, and they've done some desert drop tests, and it really is rather impressive. It's too bad we're not on Mars to see it. Yes, indeed. But it's the ideal way to land something if you need to get into a place that is dangerous to get into. Right. It's the only way, in fact. All right. What's I... really bizarre is it's the only time that NASA's ever going to do this. 
Now, this is really peculiar. Think about this. You spend $150 million to develop a probe, which does what no probe has ever done before. It goes straight in like a rifle bullet, all right? Mm-hmm. When you get there, you, you slow down using brute force of the atmosphere. You literally land safely, not by retro rockets, gently lowering yourself down. Right. You've encased yourself in baggies, and you bounce to a, to a halt. Okay. Tetrahedral spacecraft. Yes. Now, when you put a tetrahedron in a sphere, remember the touch points are 19.5 degrees. Yes. So we're landing a tetrahedron at the one place on Mars where it makes incredible sense because it's at the touch point of a tetrahedron inside Mars. We launched it when Mars is in the celestial sphere at that tetrahedral touch point. The overwhelming pattern here is tetrahedron, tetrahedron, tetrahedron. Yes. The trajectory takes seven months to get there. Yes. There are seven symmetry spins of a tetrahedron. You can only rotate a tetrahedron seven symmetrical ways. Not six, not eight, seven. Seven. That's where seven, by the way, in the Bible keeps coming up over and over and over again. It refers to the seven symmetry spins of the tetrahedron. That goes back to Stan Tenen's material from the other night. Uh, yes. you got to have him back on because he's got tons more stuff to tell Oh, you. I will. He was Good. wonderful. All of this is saying to me, what's wrong with this picture? Because we're landing on July 4th, and there's nothing going on in the sky. You've gone to this incredible length to do all this deep symbolism that none of the engineers know about, because obviously they're not plugged in. This is being mandated by other people, all right, above their pay grade. And they don't ask questions. They just do what they're told. Okay. So I'm looking at the sky, and I'm, I'm, I'm flashing on the computer that the pattern for Viking was very different. Viking was our first landing back in 76, right? Mm-hmm. We got to Mars on June 19th with Viking. We did not land on Mars with Viking until July 20th, right? Right. Because we went into orbit. Unlike Pathfinder, it wasn't a bullet straight in. Right. We went into orbit. Right. And when they looked down ostensibly, they claimed that there were too many rocks at the intended landing site. So they had to go looking for more interesting and less dangerous terrain. Okay. And they looked and they looked and they looked and they finally, after, well, they were supposed to also land on July 4th. Did you know that? No. And they were supposed to land at 19.5 on Viking. Did you know that? No. Now, this is interesting because this is long before Hoagland and company and all us other guys out here got involved and figure out the significance of the tetrahedral geometry and 19.5. Okay. We've so covered NASA, that. Now, 20 Rich, years ago. Please, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, why is this spacecraft going to disappear? You I'm know? getting there. This is complicated. Trying to make it simple. Without the pictures, it's not simple. Um, so I'm looking at the previous pattern, which is when Viking actually did land on Mars, which was July 20th, the anniversary of the landing date in '69 mm-hmm. of Neil and Buzz on the Moon. Yes, yes. Where Sirius was at 19.5, remember, above the lunar horizon. At that landing time, Sirius and um, Orion were literally at the meridian on Mars. And I was able to pull this up in the computer and run the actual calculations and see it for myself. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Yes. All right. And 
you know the meridian is important when things are right on the on the line between north and south. That's part of this Egyptian mythos. Right. When the picture was taken, the first picture of Sidonia, where the face and the pyramids are located, which was five days later, looking down from the Viking orbiter. Yes. At that moment, which was 3.26 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, on the 25th of July, 1976, Orion was 19.5 degrees above the southeast horizon of Sidonia. And I'm looking at the computer plot for the landing time and site of Pathfinder, and nothing works. Nothing fits. It's just an ordinary sky. So just for the heck of it, I ran the computer up to July 20th, which is the anniversary of Neil and Buzz, the anniversary of Viking, and bingo, everything popped out. At the so, landing site, they're planning to land. All right. Now, finally, I think I've got it. In other words, you're saying the time for this spacecraft to land is July 20th, not July 4th. Precisely. Because oh. Orion is exactly 19.5 degrees, the, okay. the middle belt star above the horizon. And if you're standing over at Sidonia, Leo, which is the key connection to Earth to us yes. between Mars and Earth and the, and the Giza Plateau is exactly on the meridian. All right. Now I have a layman's question. Let's assume that you are correct. Oh, I'm not done yet. I'm oh, well, nevertheless, yet. let me be no, no, generous. No, I, I have to add one more data point. All, All right, right, go ahead. So now I'm intrigued, and I ran the final calculation. In fact, there are two calculations. One is for tranquility. Suppose you were able to, on that afternoon, actually, it's, uh, it's, it's afternoon in, in uh, Greenwich time. It's 4.55 p.m. Greenwich time on the 20th. Suppose at that moment, with Pathfinder landing on our calculation on Mars, with things at 19.5, Orion, mm -hmm. suppose you were standing next to the descent module of, of uh, the Eagle, the, the lunar module, at tranquility on the moon. Yes. What would you see? Orion. You would see Orion at 19.5 degrees right. above the western horizon. Right, I recall that. No, no, no. This is on the 20th. I mean, you have said that before. No, but remember, everything is moving, Art. That doesn't happen every year on the 20th. It happens rarely on the 20th and right. rarely at the right time. In other words, for right. all these curves to cross, it is impossible as me going over there to Vegas and betting on seven and having it come up every single time. I'm with you. There's no way this can be accidental. I'm with you. So now we have an extraordinary, because that means, you know, you got to back time this thing. That means that not only was the landing site on the moon chosen specifically right. to coincide 30 years ago with this Pathfinder landing on Mars, I also ran the numbers for the city of Phoenix. And the city of Phoenix figures in crucially, because at the moment that Pathfinder lands, if you're looking at the sky over Phoenix, which is broad daylight, all right, in the sky, Sirius and Orion will mimic the Sirius-Orion configuration over the uh, Viking 1 landing site on Mars at that landing. Hmm. And... 
just for good measure, because that meant that somehow Phoenix, the rebirth of the new from the old in the symbology, the connection to Leo, this American city sitting out there in the southwest tonight, mm -hmm. had to be part of this equation, this grand, extraordinary plan from the beginning. So I went back to the computer and plugged in the numbers for when Neil and Buzz landed 30 years ago on the moon. And at that moment, remember I said Phoenix is at 33, 30 degrees? Yes. At that moment, when Sirius on the moon for Neil and Buzz was 19.5 above the horizon, at Phoenix at that exact instant when they set down, it was at 33, 30 degrees. All right. Um... So there's a huge integrated plan. And this plan has been carried out by men, human beings, in service to something so big and so grand that it's been driving the show behind the scenes magically as part of a secret ceremony, a secret tradition, a secret ritual for over a generation, for at least 30 years, and maybe a lot longer, because this, of course, brings up why does Phoenix have the name it does, and who put Phoenix where it is? Because you can't move these data points around. In other words, if this is all going to work, all these places have to be related celestially. You're not moving planets around. You're simply moving dots on a map on the surface around and making things coincide at a certain time according to a celestial clock, which a computer can calculate or an ancient text can predict okay. from a previous computer that calculated it. All right. Uh, please let me ask a question. Please? Go ahead. All right. From a layman's point of view, uh, you have described this spacecraft, the Mars Pathfinder, as heading toward Mars like a bullet. You uh -huh. predict it will disappear and then suddenly reappear. Yep. Days later, NASA will be uh, a hero, uh, a heroic organization for having found it again. Uh -huh. What I don't understand is, um, if this thing is proceeding toward Mars like a bullet, what can they do in that span of time that it disappears that will create enough change so that this uh, spacecraft reaches Mars on July 20th, the day you suggest it should reach there to make sense, rather than July 4th? That's a big difference. It's an excellent question, and it's not a big difference. Let me explain. Right? If you were to sit in space, you know, if you were God and looking down on the solar system from above the north pole of the ecliptic, above the north pole of the Earth's orbit, since the planets all orbit basically in the same plane, yes. like a flat dinner plate, yes. they are moving basically in, in the same uh, dimension. There's not much variance above or below this, this common plane. Mm -hmm. You know, a few, few degrees, tenths of a degree, something like that. Yes. When you get, when you send these spacecraft out on these trajectories, even for Pathfinder, on this fast, uh, shallow trajectory, by the time you get to Mars, within a few days, you are moving parallel, or almost parallel, in this case within 15 degrees of parallel, to its orbit around the Sun. So you're closing in at a very shallow angle. I see. As you're catching it up from behind. All right? Now, you, you mentioned they had uh, a lot of fuel on board. They have a lot of fuel. 
All right. So, so what in other I've words, done is run the numbers. They've got enough fuel that they could do a, a little retro rocket fire. It's not. It's not retro rocket. No. No. no, no. What What you want to do is they've got. They had 93 kilograms, which is about 200 pounds. They used 25 percent of that in their first mid-course burn. They have four of these mid-courses um, uh, targeted or, or planned. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. By the way, the first burn was 33.3 meters per second. All right, so what are you suggesting they will do to change the mechanics of this? They have to perform what's called a lateral burn, meaning sideways. And they have to stretch out their aiming point, so instead of encountering Mars here on the 4th, they encounter it slightly farther away on the 20th, which is a slight angle deviation, and the numbers... They have more than adequate fuel to do that, more than adequate. The problem is it's not in the game plan. Why do they need to make the Pathfinder disappear in order to accomplish that? Why can't they just do it? Because they've already announced they're locked in politically to landing on Independence Day on the 4th. I see. If they were to suddenly announce for no reason that they had changed the 4th to the 20th, someone would say, why? Because it requires an awful lot of additional complexity, and, you know, things go wrong when you add complexity. So the secret guys that are running this have to somehow come up with an excuse so the honest guys don't figure it out. And the only way that I can think of for that to happen is if after the last data for that last mid-course on the 24th is uploaded, the spacecraft has to have a hiccup. Something has to happen so that it goes away and it performs this uh, trajectory correction to extend its trajectory, to extend its flight a few more days, 16 more days, uh, in the dark, which it can do. I mean, it's designed to run autonomously from its onboard computer command. You're not doing a two-way link with these things, all right? Correct. So then, because the final landing has to be uh, done with a, with a TCM-5 or, or, or mid-course 5 just before entry, a few hours before entry, they have to bring it back. So there will be a plausible hiccup. There will be a glitch. There will be some kind of communications problem, and it will disappear for a few days, and everyone will go crazy. And there will be serious faces on television saying, we're doing everything we can. And lo and behold, this time they will find it because those who are secretly running this you know, hidden agenda, mm -hmm. will flip switches and it will then reappear to the guys who are honest, who haven't a clue as to what's going on. And then they will try to make the best out of a changed situation. And they will be so close to Mars that they will see that they can no longer reach the intended landing site. And my prediction is that the other alternative that they will decide to go for will be Sidonia itself. Wow. Wow. He says again, wow. So not only will be there, there be a secret um, a disappearance, there will be a, a miraculous reappearance, and the actual landing uh, site is going to change to Sidonia. Wow, Richard. Um, now... We're at the top of the hour. <laughs> <laughs> that's called radio. That's called radio. 
Uh, well, it was worth it. It was worth the wait to get here. This is an incredible prediction. All right, stay where you are. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about this. I'm Art Bell, and you're listening to CBC. Now, back to the best of Art Bell. Taking calls on the wild card line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First-time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell. What an absolutely incredible resolution to a very frustrating build-up. <laughs> I know it had to be done that way, uh, and I have some significant questions for Richard. He is making uh, a very profound short-term prediction, and that is that Mars Pathfinder will, within the next two or three days, be lost. Everybody will go crazy, and then suddenly it will be found again. But instead of landing on Mars on December 4th, if everything Richard has been talking about is correct, Pathfinder instead will land on July 20th. And it will not land where it was going to land. It will land instead at Cydonia. That's where we'll pick it up in a moment. All right, back now to Richard Hoagland. Richard, my God, of all <laughs> places where they would land, Cydonia which is the one region that you and I both know they have avoided like the plague, like the Martian plague, and, and you're telling me now they're going to go out of their way to land at Cydonia. Okay, let me, let me expand on this. When you say they, we have to be careful to enumerate which they we're talking about. They who are behind the scenes. Let's, well, let's leave it there, at that. But there are two sets of they. I understand. Oh. There is a contingent that, like in Watergate is recommending strongly the hangout route. Remember Ehrlichman and Haldeman and Dean and all that and the limited hangouts and the unlimited hangouts and stonewalling. Yeah. The president was being urged to come clean all that. Well, yep. there is a contingent in NASA, according to our sources, that really is getting close to the edge and realizes this can't go on much longer. And they have been pushing and voting and pressuring for an option that would basically blow the game wide open and create a stunning new game, a stunning new set of paradigms and options and opportunities. Then there's the old guard that are arguing on the basis of Brookings and other things that right. we, we can't handle it. I hear you. What we're seeing here, I believe, is a war between the new and the old. Now, let me, let me refer you to something that happened on your show 
just the other night. You had uh, the two NASA representatives, Don Savage and Ray Villardo. That's right. You then asked um, uh, David Oates to run the analysis of their interview in reverse. I sent him a high-quality tape for that purpose, and he did, and the results were absolutely staggering. Even uh, Mr. Oates, uh, well, he called me, I'll tell you privately, Richard, uh, or here on the air now, that he called me and he said, Art, these are so amazing, so staggering, that I'm almost afraid to play them on the air. I said, no, David, let's rock. Well, what's important for everyone to know, uh, yourself included, is that I have been quietly aware of the science, I'm going to use that term specifically, the science of reverse speech, separate from David Oates and his efforts, for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I know that it is being utilized in some very sensitive government functions. And I can tell you two specific places where I encountered it, where it was being used in negotiations and in the analysis of intelligence. One was the Senate Foreign Relations Committee which is where I first encountered it about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I encountered it at the staff level. And it was being used, albeit in a tentative, exploratory fashion, to, you know, augment the function of the committee, which is to hold hearings and to ascertain the truth of witnesses, things like that. Okay. The other area it was used in was by one of the major intelligence agencies of the United States government. And I got this from a key agent uh, in one of those agencies. Now, this is a background that I've had in terms of perspective on this that most of the people who listen to you and most of the people who've been commenting in our conference over at Enterprise have not until this evening had. Mm -hmm. And it was for that reason that I requested um, when I talked with David Oates, uh, we, we talked a few days ago, I asked him to prepare a summary statement of his research, which, of course, is independent of the Senate and independent of the intelligence community. That's correct. And put it on our website. And I have now linked on our website to his website and to the complete transcript of the conversation, the interview that you conducted with Villard and with Savage. In those backward reversals, which are Jungian archetypal subconscious uh uh, communications, and we can get into how they might work in a couple of minutes, but let me hit the punchline here first. There are some extremely revealing statements which are very, very prescient of the analysis of Pathfinder that I have just laid out. Which ones specifically you, hit you? Let me read you one of them, all right? Yes. You had asked, and I'm going to scan down. I have it here in the computer. I'm on I'm on Oath site right now. You had asked a question relating to taking pictures with the surveyor of of Sidonia. Yes. And Villard said, we'll tell everybody in advance. The problem is, meaning the orbit, the problem is we don't know now when we're going to be able to do that because it's impossible to predict how the orbit is going to be established. And the reversal said, inaugural, new wine, one point of view, send them off with that. Mm-hmm. Well, new wine is another metaphor for Phoenix, rebirth from the ashes of the old. What would be a more stunning rebirth from the old than to finally lay out Sidonia in the new? Mm-hmm. Completely transform the current equation. Now, that's 
one comment from that rather long and lengthy interview, which had all kinds of interesting tidbits, but the overall gestalt, to me, was that the agenda that those two spokespersons were enunciating on your show that night was a distinct variance with the inner knowledge and workings of the real program that they are privy to. Now we have to ask the question, how much do they really know? Are, are you surprised, or were you surprised, that um, listening to the reversals, they were obviously aware of the larger agenda? Uh, I mean, after all, we're talking about a couple of PR guys here. Yeah, I was not surprised. Let me tell you what I think we ought to caution everybody. Um, Oates himself called them NASA scientists, and that's an honest mistake because David is not privy. I mean, he doesn't follow this stuff, so right. everybody thinks that when NASA's people open their mouth, they're scientists. No, right. they're not. They right. are They are PR flax. Right. Savage is a PR guy for headquarters, and Villard was for the Space Telescope Institute. Right. Their job is to get out front, like the president's press secretary, and say something. The less they know, the better. Because if you're going to tell the lie, you got to kind of half-believe the lie. Correct. Or at least not have your mind cluttered up with the truth so Correct. you find it hard to remember which you're saying on which day. Right. But as with any other human beings, these are not dummies. These are people who are bright, you're, you know, are plugged in, who oh, are yes. certainly asking questions. Oh, yes. And like every American that knows subliminally there's something else going on, they have read the literature. They know what the wisdom is out there. And so what I saw in their subconscious statements, in the backward reversals, was the same kind of fear and apprehension and projections that a lot of other people who knew just enough to be dangerous would, would make, but not enough to really know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so you have to take the specifics with a grain of salt, like the idea about weapons. I mean, what's a weapon? Knowledge can be a weapon. In this case, sure. we, we, we know that the truth about Sidonia, the truth about extraterrestrial artifacts, the truth about what's on the SDS-80 video, the truth itself is a weapon in an internal war within the system, one side against the other side. Well, I have become familiar enough with reverse speech to know that despite what we play for the public, which are the obvious, easy-to-hear reversals, the most profound reversals are those metaphoric reversals. And uh, we don't frequently do those on the air because they're very difficult for the American people who, who don't have a trained ear to understand and interpret. Right. But the consistency is that the human speech pattern itself is extraordinarily archetypal when it's unfettered by a conscious, visible agenda. Right. And this brings us back to Stan Tennant's work. Right. One of the things you're going to get into when you talk to Tim the next time is the idea of there is a natural, universal algorithm for speech itself, which is not separated by culture or language barriers or whatever. But in fact, there is a universal nomenclature for things that the universe itself references and that goes back to this hyperdimensional physical model of a multidimensional universe where the structure of reality itself mandates the language we use to express it. Now this is an extraordinary variance with a lot of modern theories about language except for those of a gentleman named Noam Chomsky. Someone, by the way, that you probably should have on your show at some point. He's at MIT. Would love to. He has been a natural linguist 
completely separate from Tenen and his work, but the two of them have arrived at a, at a, at a consensus point by a separate routes. And so when I hear the reversals and I know that there are algorithms which are fundamental to consciousness that unfettered by an agenda leak out like the truth will out I can make a pattern here where I can clearly see that those reversals were in context they were specific in terms of what these gentlemen were thinking congruent apprehensive of they were congruent yes and 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 the clearest example is when you run Clinton he's not thinking about Sidonia when you run Villard and Savage, they're not worried about Whitewater. Right. It's very context-specific. It's not noise and nonsense. It's information. No, it's congruent, um, e- either in revealing the truth or a lie, but congruent, nevertheless, with what is being discussed. There's yep. no question about it. I have come to be an absolute believer in it, Richard. It's, it cannot be denied. We've done too many hours of it, I believe. Well, I... I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm believing, but I, since I know that it's being used by people where the stakes are much higher, and it's used as another adjunct tool, both in the intelligence community and at least one, you know, uh, committee of the U.S. Congress, I have a, a different perspective on how much space you can put in it, and it's pretty high. All right. So I was not surprised. What was striking to me was the fear level that we're dealing with human beings here who come sure. off as professionals, sure. who come off as calm and smooth and we know what we're doing, and when you remove the lid, you find that they're really very fearful and apprehensive of things that are taking place. Well, now go to the guys behind them that really know. What are, is their fear level? What agenda have they structured for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years based on fear of the unknown as opposed to an embracing of an extraordinary future connected to an extraordinary past. All right. What happens when Mars Pathfinder lands at Cydonia? Is that the moment chosen to... Is that the aha moment, the Brookings moment, <laughs> when suddenly uh, it is going to be revealed to us that um, indeed these structures at Cydonia are not natural? Well, it will be undeniable if this is the plan that when you look from the surface with those cameras, you're going to see, you know, things like the lawn furniture. And that gets back to the structure of the mission itself. If you were to design a spacecraft to get down into Sidonia and survive, Mm -hmm. because it's a tight space, you've got targeting errors, you don't know what other junk there is in the sand that we're not seeing at the level of the Viking data, it's a very dangerous place to try to land anything. Sure. This is the only technology that we could put together to do it. Now, here's some other data points. Yes, but what I'm asking is, what do you think will happen? In other words, will it be a revelation moment um, when we're finally going to, in effect, say to the world, okay, here it is, we've made the discovery, what a stroke of luck, an accident, and we had to land here, and now here it is, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Brookings aside, guess what? It's not natural. What a revelation! Is well, it, it, I think I think what's going to happen, you're going to see a you're you're going to see some kind of plausible excuse for why Sidonia is kind of the last way to rescue a mission. Donna Shirley, who is the program manager at JPL, 
was asked by one of my colleagues that night when I was not allowed to be there at the Cape and asked my own questions. Yes. What they expected from the mission. Yes. And she said, we'll be thankful just to get it down there. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're spending $150 million on a mission and you basically only care that it gets to anywhere on Mars, that is, a, to me, an open you know, invitation to go someplace really interesting. Number two, are you aware that Caltech and NASA and JPL have quietly signed a licensing agreement with Mattel? No. Mattel has created a replica of the Pathfinder rover and the spacecraft with articulated moving parts and little wheels and all this. And they are set, waiting in the wings for a major marketing campaign to sell little miniature Pathfinder rovers and spacecraft to all the kids in America they can reach. Now, isn't it interesting that the only reason that people might want to buy little rovers is if maybe Pathfinder is going to do something stunningly interesting and historic. And so you do believe that will occur? I'm looking at the data. I'm trying to organize this in a pattern that makes sense. All right, so this is the first moment that I've heard you hedge a little bit. Uh, Now, let me... Let me go back and ask you a very hard question, Richard. You've got your neck out a million miles on this one. If a Pathfinder lands as programmed July 4th, not July 20th, mm-hmm. uh, and you are wrong, um, does that collapse the entire uh, carefully constructed uh, a scenario that you've laid out so carefully for us? Well, remember, we have two camps here. We have two forces at war for control. We have the suppression camp and the, I'll call it the empowerment camp within the system. For a name. The empowerment camp, I think, is drawing on a lineal descendancy going back before Kennedy. Whoever set this in motion, connecting all these dots, Mm -hmm. all these connections with Egypt and the symbology and all that, it isn't random. There's incredible important meaning here. There's meaning in terms of prior history and human civilization and who we are and our identity, and it's somehow connected to Phoenix. Now, I've only discovered the Phoenix part in the last you know few days because of the of the impending uh, strangeness around Phoenix after Francis Barwood's treatment and looking at what that sighting was all about. If you connect that sighting on March 13th which, by the way, was the night of Old Navy, which we'll get into in the next hour, (laughs) and the STS-80 video. Remember, who's flitting around on STS-80 at 19.5? There are other players here, Art. We're not the only ones interested in the outcome of this saga. All right. Uh, Hold it right there, and we'll be right back to you. And, yes, we are about to open the phone lines. Coming up next, this is CBC. This, once again, here is Richard Hoagland. And, Richard, there are a lot of people sitting waiting to talk to you. So, okay, let me, let me make one more statement here. All right, go ahead. Um, I have not taken leave of my senses, and I know full well what I am doing in terms of putting the fragile credibility that we've spent 15 years building up on, on the, the line. line. Yep. I think it is so important that people in this country wake up and realize 
a tiny handful of people, some of them with what they believe are the best motives, are not living up to the constitutional mandates of the founders of this nation. And it's time to simply take control back to where it belongs. Now, if I have to put myself out on the edge of this surfboard and hang ten, I am perfectly willing to do that, provided the data supports me. And what I'm going to put on the web tomorrow and in the next couple days is the data that goes back over 30 years. If this pattern is going to be abrogated, it must be abrogated by something equally astounding. Mm -hmm. Something truly amazing has to happen to break this pattern because somebody has put tremendous thought and care and energy and money, your money and my money, into doing this in secret. And it's a very ancient and long tradition. If that pattern is violated, it will tell us as much as if it is fulfilled. So I'm willing to go out and predict that based on this pattern, something different than what we've been told about Pathfinder has got, I repeat, has got to happen. Now, the exact scenario depends on how clever they are at creating the cover stories. I can imagine a scenario where it doesn't disappear at all. It just takes on a mind of its own, and they all throw up their hands and say, holy gee whiz, it's running away, and they then... Okay, it doesn't matter how right, it that's occurs. That's what I mean. It so doesn't, don't it, hold uh, me to No, I'm not holding you to that, but if in, fa- if in fact it, it lands on July 20th rather than the 4th, yep. you will be correct, uh, and, and the, however it occurs really is... That's the first part. I'm, I'm glad we're immaterial. all on the same page. All right. Number two, the second prediction is... Something major is going to happen in Phoenix. Phoenix. Phoenix, Arizona. Like what? Ah, there are already bizarre rumors of the most outrageous kind, up to and including martial law. And this... Oh, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm reading that on the Internet. I would not have mentioned it except for what you just said, Richard. There is a... There are rumors of military forces headed toward that area on the Internet. Now, yep. I give it no weight. Um, well, let me tell you why I give it some weight, and I'll tell you what kind of weight I give it. If you're looking at this in a metaphysical perspective, and let me define what I mean by that, hyperdimensional physics is metaphysics. Oh God. It's a physics that right. encompasses everything from technology to consciousness, from how stars function to who we really are, right? Yes. If something extraordinarily positive is about to happen. Yes. That will break human consciousness open. Yes. The other guys, the other side, are going to try to screw it up. Now, how do you screw things up on planet Earth? You make people afraid. And you divert them. You're suggesting there's going to be some sort of terrible act. No, I'm suggesting that someone is suggesting there could be a terrible act and hoping that the fears of people will run rampant. And the place would be Phoenix. Yeah. Now, Phoenix is critically important. We've now figured out, we think, again, with this incredible team of people that I've been fortunate to work with, we've figured out a possible reason for the seminal importance of Phoenix. And that takes us hundreds of years, hundreds of thousands of years, back before the current city of Phoenix. Remember, Art, what we're talking about. We're talking about a time in the solar system when someone, most likely us, human beings, all right, 
lived on a multiplicity of planets and had a sterling golden age of civilization that was unprecedented and unparalleled and we can only dream of it. We get snippets of it as fables and legends and archetypes and mythos of this incredible golden age, an era of Eden perhaps. Remember the references in the NASA guys to Eden? Yes. Okay. And something happened. And you and I and Tom Van Flanner and a few others have had discussions about what might have happened and a war where weapons so horrible they literally blew planets apart may have been used. And NASA's efforts to keep us from knowing this, ignoring the data, which is all around us, that Tom may in fact be right. Yes. In fact, Tom, when he was on the show last time, discussed specifically that Mars could have been one of the satellites. I recall. Of this planet. Yes. The numbers are pretty amazing. If that's true, then you have to ask yourself, is it possible that this piece of desert, now where Phoenix lies, was site of something much grander a long, long, long time ago? One of my colleagues uh, this afternoon used the term sister city. But why Phoenix now? Ah, well, let me, let me get to that. Oh, you've got to, because I've got people on hold, Richard. <laughs> They're paying for it, so. Um, because it may have been intended historically to mark the place of the ancient connection beyond the Earth to Mars. All right, what would be the reason for the creation of some sort of incident, whatever we imagine it might be in Phoenix. Now, well, no, again, you're using the word incident. I'm saying that the, 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 the rumors, the fear, remember, after Oklahoma City, all you have to do is flick your eyebrow and people get scared. That's right. It has triggered a paralysis reaction. That's right. To where, look, if, 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 if someone were to set off a firecracker, in a uh, garbage can in Phoenix on the 20th or the 18th or the 19th or whatever. The media would be all over Phoenix, given all these rumors. And we could land on Mars and have live Martians come out of the pyramids, and they'd be ignored, practically. All right? In other words, this could be a wondrous diversion because of this connection, this seminal symbolic connection, because in the numbers and in the cartography we're going to put on the web, Phoenix has played a pivotal role celestially in the targeting of the landing sites on the moon and in the picking of the time and the date of the landing site on Mars going back over 30 years. We can prove that. So you're suggesting whatever it is, it would be a diversion. Absolutely. All right. Our excellent. All right. Uh, really, let's go to the lines. First time caller line, you're on the air with Richard Hoagland. Hello. Yes. Where are you? Houston, Texas. Okay, Houston. Uh, go right ahead. Richard, in 1969, I was at uh, La Costa, Rancho Santa Fe area in California, saw a newspaper with big headlines that said UFOs in L.A. skies. Went to get a newspaper. The long and short of the story is I met a man there who seemed to be strange and four years later married him after borrowing his newspaper. He was in La Costa because he had just been appointed ambassador uh, with Nixon and was in San Clemente. Uh, so Ambassador Franzheim and I, um, in 1979, began my quest to work on an archaeological project. I ran into Zahi Hawass when he was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. 
1981, I succeeded in getting the American Research Center in uh, Egypt, in Cairo, uh, to allow my husband and I and my daughter to participate on the restoration of the Sphinx. I did that by making a contribution of $20,000 toward the research in restoration work with um, an Indian doctor, at, um, professor at the University of uh, Kentucky in Louisville. And with that, I also, uh, during around that time, secured uh, permission, and I'm not sure how I did this, uh, to get uh, into the Great Pyramid alone. Um, I lost my son in 1970 and thought that by getting into the king's chamber, into the sarcophagus, I would be able to contact my son's spirit. I was very afraid when I was uh, realized I was alone in the pyramid, and I only contacted my fear. Uh, after that, um, I had a confrontation with uh, Dr. Ahmed Kadri, who was chairman of the Egyptian Antiquities Organization at the time, and I told him I was not going to raise another $100,000 that I had committed to because it had been brought to my attention that the restoration on the Sphinx was the improper mortar. And I ended up uh, having a coverage by Time magazine, I believe it was in the May 10th, 1982 issue, where um, I caused a bit of an international scandal because this was all made public. Um, the point of this is that I then was called to Washington by then Ambassador uh, Gorbal, who uh, I was a personal friend of, and he said, Susan, it's very important that we not have a divorce with you, that you and Egypt do not get divorced. And I said, no, it's only a separation. I didn't get in touch with Gorbal until 1994 when I went to his office in Cairo. However, the year before, 1993, in Houston, Zahi Hawass, then uh, already the um, director of the Giza uh, Plateau, was giving a lecture on the discovery of the workers' um, uh, excavations. And um, with that, I had brought, I was surprising him, and I brought a very large box of papers from my years of compiling things from all different sources on the Sphinx. And I said, Zahi, I would really like you to take this stuff. And he said, well, I'm traveling and I can't do that. He said, let me just look through it quickly. And he came upon a file that was on the Hall of Records. And his face really changed, and he said, oh, I really need this. Uh, can I have this? And I said, Zahi, all these papers and things are for you. He said, I'm going to Dallas to an important meeting. Uh, I'm going to take this. I said, fine. In 1994, my partner and I, had um, we went to Zahi's office, and we met privately with him there. There was a German archaeologist there, and there were some problems. And I remember Zahi was going to give my partner and I a private tour of the Sphinx with the new restoration work but he was held up. He assigned someone to us. We went on our tour, and we had a private dinner with Zahi that night with Dr. Uh, Mark Lehner. And Mark, who wasn't a Ph.D. at the time that I worked on the Sphinx Project, um, was there with Zahi and the Deputy Minister for Culture, uh, Dr. Mohammed, not Dr., Mohammed Gonim, uh, who was a personal friend from years ago as well. Okay, in the interest of time, we've got to... Yes, 
my my curiosity, first of all, I don't know why I placed myself or have been placed for almost 30 years in this conversation involving UFOs and involving Egypt. I've always, however, felt that I never belonged to my family, and I've always felt left out that a UFO never contacted me. I don't know how I'm being used or what the purpose is for me having a house full of documentation of all sorts that I still haven't gotten rid of, and I have no use for it now. So I'd love to send that to you or to someone. Secondly, a friend died recently, willed me all her books. I just came back from Washington where I picked them up, and I was going to deliver them to my friend David Kaplan, who's working on the Mars probe at NASA. Mm -hmm. However... Uh, this woman's husband was uh, Dr. Tony Callio, the former uh, head of NOAA. And I have these books. They seem important. I'm not interested in them. And I seem to be getting to what's next. I would not be on the phone with you tonight, nor would I have ever listened to this KTRH radio if there wasn't this uh, of tornado or level one hurricane winds here in Houston today. And I had no power. I couldn't go to sleep, and I put on the radio. <laughs> so the confluence of all of this, the synergy, the synchronicity, I called KTRH because I wanted to send a uh, word to you. I couldn't get through, dialing, dialing for hours. Finally, I called KTRH. I got a very negative report about the two of you. That did not deter me, but the person was very helpful, gave me your fax number and all these other numbers. I prepared a fax. My partner was trying to send it. Couldn't get through. And there's some meaning in this. I intend to be an agent for change, and for the last 30 years I've devoted myself to giving people wake-up calls. All right, ma'am, we have got to cut it off at this point. Contact yes. Richard Hoagland. You've got his fax number. If you don't, I'll give it to you. No, I only have the seven... The 702 one. All right, then, Richard, please give her your fax number. Okay, area code 201-271-1703. All right. All right, I want you to have mine. mine uh, well, no, we cannot give that on the air, ma'am. Okay, fine. Put uh, it on what, the fax. Uh, what I'm going to Susan, do... Susan, yes? before you leave, let me say something. Yes. This is an extraordinary first call, Art, because one of the things I wanted to do tonight is ask people all across America who have bits and pieces of this puzzle, particularly in the Phoenix area, to please contact us. And obviously, Susan, you got that message before I could even utter it. Strange. No appropriate. Yeah, got it. So We will be in touch. All, all right. right. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Uh, take care. Um, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Richard Hoagland. Hello. Yes, all right. Yes. Richard. Yes, sir. I, I don't know if we can take another week like we did last week. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a wreck. Uh, this is Jerry in northern Michigan. A um, couple quick questions, and let me get off the air so somebody else can talk. Uh, didn't Robert Morningsky and, uh, or Ghost Wolf talk about uh, some meeting in the south desert there sometime this summer? That must be a question. That, that must be a question for me, not yeah, Richard. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, do you have a question for Richard? Yeah, I sure do. Uh, Richard, let me ask you this: If you drew a line through the Great Pyramid in Egypt using the side angle of what?
what is it, 51 point some odd degrees, mm -hmm. would that line going northwest, would that bisector come anywhere close to Stonehenge? Yes. Well, can we tie that together with the uh, Doug Ruby the other night and the explanation of the crop circles? I oh, heard yeah, you no, there's, 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 to Mrs. There's, Ruby. There's no doubt there's a global grid. Uh, these key monuments are on it. It is a mnemonic device to get us to remember something that's important, which is not Kilroy was here. It appears to be this physics, which is a key to everything from the universe to consciousness that appreciates the universe. And there's a really set of interconnected threads here, data points that are falling on the floor so rapidly, including, you know, the consciousness that Stan talked about at the beginning of last week, and then Gene Mayloff on Tuesday talking about a practical energy technology right. and a physics that can literally reduce radioactivity with half-lives of billions of years in hours on live television on ABC. We're moving. It's not a quickening. It's a warping. I mean, we're, we're warping out at warp nine here yes. to some point. What I don't want to see happen is a tiny elite manipulating this curve for their own ends while the rest of us kind of stand around and say, duh, what's going on here? <laughs> well, uh, there has been almost too much synchronicity for even me. <laughs> and I, I deal with a lot of synchronicity, Richard, but the last couple of weeks, now including this week, uh, really have been almost too much. And the people who listen... Uh, and really listen to this program, I think feel exactly the same way. Uh, there's only so much coincidence any person can stand uh, without beginning to come to conclusions as you have begun to come to them. Now, I, I want to ask you this. Consider it during the break. Again, with reference to what's going to occur to Pathfinder, um, or more accurately, the date of the landing. Now, if the date of the landing is not July 20th, what is that going to mean to you in terms of all your research? Uh, not the method of, uh, of the changing, but if... Anyway, let me finish it when we get back uh, from the high desert. I'm Art Bell, and this is CBC. listening to an encore performance of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. This program is aired live Monday through Friday from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. in the Pacific Time Zone and 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. in the Eastern. Art Bell's Dreamland can be heard live Sunday nights 7 to 10 in the Pacific Time Zone and 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. in the Eastern. Please contact your local radio listings to confirm the exact times Art Bell airs live in your area. And now, Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Now, uh, the question I was trying to get out prior to the break at the top of the hour was simply uh, there has been a very great deal of careful, even at times painful documentation by Richard of the forces and uh, the uh, uh, synchronicity of what's going on, um, 30 years of it, which points, in his opinion, to what will occur with Mars Pathfinder. 
Uh, here is a rather harsh response to what he said. Art, it seems everyone and everything has a very deep meaning and significance. In other words, that silly woman caller. Wake up, Art. Wake up, Richard. We're little, furry, insignificant animals living near a rather normal star amongst billions. The ridiculous egotism and your self-importance and the self-importance of nearly all your guests is laughable. How's that for a data point? From Dan in Van Nuys. <laughs> okay, for Dan. <laughs> you know, this is an interesting philosophical juncture. Yes. Because Dan's perspective is the perspective of an awful lot of people. You bet. And it is killing us. Now, my perspective is different. I don't know whether we're just little furry creatures near a, a normal star, to quote my dear friend Carl, or whether Carl has gone on to more interesting and wondrous things and is sitting somewhere wondering when the rest of us are all going to get with the program now. Because, you see, that's what this is all about. It's about finding out. Dan has his mind made up. I don't. I'm following a yellow brick road, and I'm going to see what is behind the next curve and through the next door and over the next transom if I can. I don't have an outcome that I'm presupposing or projecting. I want to know. Well, so, you are presupposing, though, that though you, won't tell, though you can't tell us specifically the method they will use, they will in some way delay the landing uh, of Mars, Pathfinder, well, no, no, from, from July 4th to July 20th. There's no magic here. They'll use the thrusters, all right? I understand. The I, no, I, is, I don't, what will the cover story be? Okay, I don't care how they do it. What, what you're saying is they will do it. The method, I don't care. You're if saying they will do it. this pattern is as robust as, and when you said opinion, no, this is not opinion. Look, I have run these numbers, these landing site yep. calculations past the people who got us to the moon, mm -hmm. who are willing to stand front and center and be identified. They're not, they don't want to be anonymous. They want to be identified out there so their colleagues can analyze this data from a data point of view. They're the ones that affirm to me that for this pattern to be repeated over and over and over and over and over again, mm -hmm. it can't be accidental. Yes, it there, are, there are a lot of rocks that make up your yellow brick road, and you're a long way down it right now. Yep. And, and the next conclusion is, if this has any projective meaning, they're not going to miss the biggie, which is what it's all pointing toward, which is, at some point, this story has to come to a, to a catharsis. There has to be a climax. There has to be a point to 30, 40 years of weirdness and, mm -hmm. and skullduggery and stinking around in the bushes and not telling people the truth while taking billions and billions from their, from their, from their pockets. That may be this summer with a seminal event, which would be if this thing lands in Sidonia and we get to see it on television and the ones that want to hide it don't succeed, then a whole new era, a whole new day, a new phoenix will be born that will begin a transformation of Homo sapiens on this planet and a reconnection with an awful lot of mystery that currently most people aren't even aware of. Richard? And the forces arrayed against that art are pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I decided to take the high-risk, high-profile route tonight, and I put a lot of thought into this and discussed it with a lot of people in Enterprise, is because 
people matter. If this is more than just about little furry creatures around a G-type star, it means this physics is a palpable thing which can be altered by our very thoughts. And what I'm hoping is that I can connect with enough of those 15 million-plus people mm -hmm. that we keep talking about that listen to you every night. Mm -hmm. And those people in their heart of hearts really want this new era to be born. They really want to know. And the collective of their wishes will help to overpower those who don't want us to know, who don't want us to grow, who don't want us to reach beyond our grasp. And that's really the experiment tonight. Because if we all kind of think about this and what it might mean, and the extraordinary new level of human drama that could unfold right on our live television screens this summer, I think the good guys can win this time. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard Hoagland. Hello. Hi, Art. Happy birthday. Thank you. Hey, um, this is great. Um, what I, what I, I share your sentiments uh, about uh, we're not small furry creatures and so forth, uh, Richard. Well, but, uh, we may be small and furry, but we're more than creatures. <laughs> we're more than we're, we're not insignificant. And, and the by the guys, way, some of my best friends are furry creatures. Yes, and one well, of them they, is up on the web. And the and the good guys will most assuredly win. Uh, I wanted to share some some data points with you about the Great Pyramid and the Phoenix. Okay. Um, the Great Pyramid um, actually was. I don't know what you're going on as the. Uh, the dating points that you're starting from for reference points having to do with the other pyramids in the area. But the Great Pyramid itself actually is, is totally different from the others, and it was built, uh, unbeknownst to most scholars, it was built uh, with the cornerstone being laid on June 21st, 3434 B.C., which puts it considerably earlier than most scholars would now like Now let me stop you it. there. What are your source reference on this? Uh, this is based on the Great Pyramid itself. And the mathematics contained. So therein. this is the pyramid inch and the inch equivalent to a year and all that, right? Um, well, that's that's part of it. Okay. Uh, it also has to do with the fact that the um, only way that the pyramid could be lined up, such as it is, uh, true north, true south, and so forth, is for it to have had a, uh, as a reference point, a a polar star. There are only two times in the last six thousand years when we've had a polar star exactly where it had to be to line up that pyramid. Mm -hmm. One was uh, June 21st, 2144 B.C., which is right around the commonly accepted time for the uh, construction, beginning of construction of the pyramid. The other is uh, 21, uh, June 21, 3434 B.C., and there's a lot of evidence to support the, um, the uh, pyramid being around at that time um, having to do with Native American cultures. There's a stone type used in the pyramid uh, using the capstone, using, used to build the capstone and the sarcophagus, which is only found in one other part of the world, and that happens to be just a few miles outside of Racine, Wisconsin. Well, the problem is there is no capstone. There's a missing Well, federal... the capstone actually was found. It was found buried in a socket uh, next to the Great Pyramid. It was, it was taken, um, and there's a... There's, uh, it's, it's actually in the, in the Museum of Cairo, but it's not on display. There's a, a mock-up of it on display. And okay, now, now the point of it being older is? 
the point of it being older is that the entire um, system that's been constructed around Orion, Osiris, Isis, Horus, Orion, and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, that's an overlay. That's an overlay. There's a plan that's uh, so much greater than having to do with uh, what, they've, what they've been talking about the Great Pyramid having to do with. It doesn't have in itself anything to do with Orion. Those other pyramids and the other structures around it were built considerably after it as afterthoughts by rather egotistical pharaohs. But the pyramid itself was built by a man known as Enoch. And the reason we know that is because of the legends having to do with the phoenix tied in with the Great Pyramid. Phoenix is the Greek form of the Egyptian name Pahenok. And Pahenok means father of the house of Enoch. Now, these things all can coincide uh, actually in Racine, Wisconsin. And this has to do with this country. Now, Phoenix, Arizona is interesting, like you say, because of the name. But the name has to do with Enoch, who is the builder of the Great Pyramid. Well, individual you, you've absolutely lost me. Richard? Uh... Well, there are several alternative historical and prehistorical constructions for what may have happened at Giza and what it means. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is one of them. Yeah. The point is that each of these separate theories can be tested, provided we get more honesty and openness and access to real data. Well, I have some real data uh, on the origin of the rock that the uh, sarcophagus is made of and, the, and the, cap, the original capstone. What is the source of your data? Well, we have samples that were uh, taken by people and we've taken these samples and done uh, various uh, tests on them. We've uh, tested them for content, uh, grain structure, and chemical analysis. Um, uh, optical emission spectrometry, spectrometry findings. And what we found is that um, two of them, the original piece, and, and I mean the original piece from the sarcophagus, and the piece mined out of a, a lava flow from near a lava flow in outside of Racine, Wisconsin, actually have identical uh, spectral analysis, identical chemical analysis, and identical grain structure, and they're the only two that do. And there's only two other sources known in the world of uh, that black chocolate rhyolite type of granite. And All right. This, well, here's, here's what I would say, sir. Uh, there's a great significance to this, and I'll boil it right down. All right, please. That is that <clears throat> it's all about uh, the return of a person who spiritually fulfills prophecy for the return of Enoch. Okay? And he was born right outside of Racine, Wisconsin, right near where the white buffalo was born several years ago. And he's been teaching a number of us, and... We're actually uh, very few in number, but we are um, we're working ultimately for the same thing you, Richard Hoagland, are working for. All right. Well, what I would suggest is that you um, fax Richard or contact Richard and um, supply him with uh, the actual data you have. Now, that did sound like somebody with good, hard, researched data, Richard. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you're willing to take a look. Absolutely. Hmm? My fax number is 201-271-1703. All right. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Hi. Um, Where are you? I'm in Victoria. All right. Stephen? Yes. Um, 
quickly, I might as well run out, run through all this. Um, I think uh, that Richard might be able to find something with. Um, there's apparently there's one uh, scripture in the Bible about uh, when the lion lays down with the lamb, and if it's constellation, um, he might find some answers there. And um, with regards to Nassau, um, apparently when um, Avro Arrow, the company in Canada, was um, shut down by Diefenbaker, um, most of those people were moved um, to Nassau. And there might um, be a trail um, worth following back from their um, time frames and everything else. And um, I was just wondering if that quite possibly could tie in with um, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the time release of the files when they were going to have them finally released. I think it was supposed to be uh, 2025 or something like that. They were to be sealed for 50 years, I believe. Richard? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the assassination apparently cut off or co-opted a plan that Kennedy and the people around him were really Im implementing in the Apollo program. And we will never know, or we might not know for a long time anyway, whether it was picked up by others and carried through. What is intriguing to me is the consistency of this pattern over decades. And we're not talking about a trivial consistency. We're talking about landing and orbits and calculations on planetary placements and, and, and celestial phenomena that are so intricate that literally only, you know, maybe a, a whole mainframe back then could have done it. And it's even difficult now to corroborate using some of the best state-of-the-art technology and programs that we have at our, our fingertips today. This is not a trivial plan. Mm -hmm. And my solidity of, you know, predicting this stuff is that if it is not trivial, if the reasons behind it are significant, if they are as weighty as I believe, then it cannot be abrogated, and it must be followed, and if it's followed, then it will indicate to those of us that are not in on the plan that there is a plan, because it has to change what they're telling us is going to happen in a couple of weeks. What if you're wrong? Well, scientists can be wrong. You know, if you're wrong, you go back and you ask yourself, what have I learned from being wrong? Then you've got to go back and really rethink the entire thing because at that point um, this long brick road of data points that you've built toward making this prediction um, well remember the, 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 the road you're talking about the yellow brick road here is a political road it's the it's a, attempting to impure, uh, impute meaning to a pattern it can be abrogated if the forces that don't want this to work are overwhelming those that do want it to work. In other words, if if at the last minute the, the other guys, the suppressors, succeed and they land this thing where nothing interesting is going on, then, of course, it will go on as, as, as planned. The very fact that there are these noises about Phoenix, the very fact that there is this weirdness out there about fear and loathing and horror in the heartland, or in this case in, in, in Phoenix, Arizona, indicates to me that it isn't a lead pipe since that those guys are going to win this time. That there's too much effort put into the other side, and that maybe we can give them a little help here. Because the transformation of consciousness, if in fact we get to see what's waiting at Sedonia, is almost unimaginable. 
new things will be born that, that we can't even contemplate tonight if that thing lands where the numbers say it's going to land. Well, um, it's an amazing... It's an amazing thing, Richard. That's all I can say. And uh, if it occurs, there are going to be a lot of people after this program that are going to sit straight up, and um, uh, probably their chins are going to hit their chests, and it'll be a new day for the world because we'll be learning about things that we should have known about long, long ago. Would that be about right? That's about right. All right. Stay right there. We'll be right back. We've got another half hour to go. I'm Art Bell. My guest is Richard C. Hoagland. What do you think, folks? From the high desert, this is CBC. Here is a simple, but to use Richard's words, uh, word, elegant question. Um, Art, please ask Richard, why didn't NASA pick the 20th in the first place to avoid all of this? Because contingent that wants to get to Sidonia doesn't want us to know it's getting to Sidonia. That makes sense. See, both sides are playing this secret game. We're not in the loop. We're not in the conversation as my late friend Dr. Sagan once said. And that's our problem. The way we get in the conversation is to interpret the cover story when it hits to understand what it really means. And that's why I'm going out on this very long limb tonight. Mm -hmm. Something has to give here, and the way to do it is to simply call it. Now, I'm betting that the... Let me, let me give you a little story. When I was a kid in high school learning physics, I had a, a brilliant teacher of physics. And he, he, he did things that would make people who weren't into physics really pay attention. And he had a love of the subject, and it was obvious that he communicated because he loved the subject. And I remember one day in class, you know, sitting there, all as freshmen in this, you know, room, big, old, ancient school, very high ceilings. And he had this cannonball <laughs> mounted on a long steel piano wire stretching up into the darkness of this auditorium must have been 50, 60 feet up in the air. And what he did is he walked back to the side wall taking the cannonball with him and he put it right up to his chin and his head is back against the wall, right? Mm -hmm. And all us guys are sitting there saying, what in the world, you know? And he lets the cannonball go. And it swings in a majestic arc, agonizingly slowly, because the wire was very long, out across the auditorium, over to the other wall, and then back <laughs> toward our professor standing there. Yes. And he, he can't go back any further. He's right back against the wall. Right. And there's this collective, <gasps> and it comes right up to within maybe an inch of his chin and stops and of hangs there. Of course. And then swings back out. Of course. And, of course, we're all going, oh. And he turns to us and he says, physics. Yeah, sure. Why were you worried? In other words, I'm confident tonight that I'm going to make an absolute ass of myself on the radio in front of a lot of people because 
the numbers say we have to be right. And this is going to be a very interesting test. It certainly is. It's going to be an interesting week. This is the end. And now back to the best of Art Bell. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with the interesting Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Hello. How are you this evening? Well, you're listening. I am absolutely riveted to my radio. I have not been able to turn away. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you, dear? I'm in Phoenix. Oh, Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And I was I was getting shivers, and and I wondered, Richard, if you thought that the recent sighting here um, with the lights in the sky um, had anything to do with this. Absolutely. Absolutely? Yep. What relation? Well, I have met with Frances Barwood. After Art had her on the show, I was down in the southwest visiting um, uh, some friends. And we decided, after we had gone to visit you, Art, that we would go and see Frances Barwood. Mm -hmm. And we spent about a day and a half with her and her very nice husband, Mike, and had an extraordinarily interesting time and learned a lot about, you know, her politics and her representation and the astonishing opposition she's encountered for simply asking, you know, the question. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like in Oliver, what, me, sir? I mean, what's happened to this woman for simply wanting to know what was flitting over Phoenix uh, a mile across with all those lights photographed by God knows how many people, and she's got videos now and eyewitness testimony and all that. Mm-hmm. The cover-up that is going on in Phoenix over something that should be so intriguing to officialdom, given the responsibilities that they've been elected to, to carry out, in itself is telling you something interesting. The next thing is, it turns out in the last uh, several weeks, George Bush and Dan Quayle have been in Phoenix four or five times on various reasons. And that I find interesting, given the politics and background of, of, of their involvement with this so-called hidden agenda vis-a-vis NASA, All right, which what we are, don't have time to go into tonight. What do the lights have to do with any of this? The lights, I think... Well, first of all, you got to ask yourself, what were the lights? Obviously, somebody was behind them. Yep. And a lot of people saw it. And the videos I've seen, they're they're not flares. They're nothing normal. I agree. By we, but we agree. All right. So that leaves either a top secret military project, grandstanding over Phoenix, or a genuine visit from somebody with a bit of technology we don't have. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't been, i got to tell you this, if it hadn't been for the lights, I would not have begun looking at Phoenix as part of this equation. So it certainly woke me up to begin to ask what's going on with Phoenix and find what we found in terms of this celestial pattern and the tie-in with Sidonia and with uh, the moon and Pathfinder. The other thing that it tells me is that somebody wants Phoenix to be highlighted in the news, to be made aware of. And that, of course, gets to the heart of what is, what's the role Phoenix plays in this. Mm. And it turns out that it plays an extraordinary role going back at least 100 years. I've, I've got a history sitting here in front of me. In 1867, a guy named Jack Swilling from Wickenburg, Arizona, actually redid some of the Hohokam irrigation systems and uh, set up what would ultimately uh, be known as the town of, uh, of Phoenix, although it didn't have a name. In 1870, a permanent town site was selected at the corner of Jefferson and First Street, 
where there now is something called Patriot Park. And there was a seven-person committee set up to select a name. Mm -hmm. An unknown arrival, a guy who came from nowhere named Daryl Dupa, suggested the name Phoenix out of the blue for the history of the bird Phoenix coming out of the ashes. And we're doing a lot of reference work on this. There's apparently one quote that has come down to us from that meeting where he said, from the ashes comes the savior of the world. Now that's kind of interesting in connection with a seminal consciousness-raising event connected potentially to an ancient heritage on another planet. So you begin to wonder if Mr. Dupa was perhaps a Mason. The story gets more interesting. In 1874, President Ulysses Grant gave, quote, a patent of acceptance to the city of Phoenix. And in 1881, the city was incorporated as Phoenix. In other words, the President of the United States, through some machination of executive order, did a special commission. We don't know what a patent means we're going to find out but phoenix goes all the way to washington in terms of its sighting its latitude longitude and the kind of the uh, official res uh, significance of its very name in american history by the president uh, duly elected by the people of this country something interesting is going on now if you look into ancient native traditions it turns out that Phoenix is on the site of supposedly one of the seven cities of gold. Remember the seven cities of Sibylla? Yes. Okay. Seven, of course, is tetrahedral. Is it? And gold, of course, is tetrahedral. We don't have time to go into why gold is tetrahedral, but we will on a future show, all right? There's a reason why gold is valuable and bright and yellow and does not decay, does not corrode. It's because of its tetrahedral hyperdimensional nature. That's for a future program. But here's something really important. If there are convoys of military guys running around Phoenix, all right, is it possible that they're getting ready to be on the site where some important trigger effect, some technological, some physical, perhaps signal, will be... Uh, heard or found on that particular day on the 20th which will indicate to somebody in the know where to dig for something important and wouldn't it be nice for all you Phoenicians out there tonight <laughs> to be kind of prowling around town and looking for guys with equipment and bags of equipment or trucks or unusual things to see if you can be there when they find it. I will say this, uh, for whatever it's worth, and uh, I mentioned it earlier, and I'm going to mention it again. I'm getting messages on the Internet, um, which I discounted and which I n normally would just trash, saying there are large military contingents uh, headed toward Phoenix. Ma'am, have you heard this? Um, just from you. Okay. From you. I, you know, it's, it's very interesting that Phoenix would be chosen as a site. Um, Phoenix is very conservative, and people here are, are not open to things. Um, it's, it's a very conservative city. Yes, um, it is. And there would be a great deal of fear if something like that were to come down here. Well, I'm not saying it would come down. I'm thinking that it might be brought up. Right. In other words, if Phoenix is on a sedimentary floodplain, 
about a mm-hmm. uh, thousand feet or two thousand feet above something very interesting that's three hundred thousand years old and buried deeply by sedimentation below the current city and it is still active in other words we're talking a technology here that actually could survive several hundred thousand years that's the nature of hyperdimensional physics art well you know a lot you're not to me don't you I don't want to put everything on the line tonight. Can I have a little self-respect left? <laughs> All right. Well, listen, uh, ma'am, do us a favor. Sure. Uh, keep your eyes open in town. I will. And you are doing wonderful work. Uh, thank so. you. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, uh, take care. See, if, if, if people in Phoenix see a bunch of guys wearing uniforms, carrying equipment, yeah. the automatic reaction, because Oklahoma is going to be, oh, my God, it could happen again. Yeah, something That's awful. the cover. Yeah. That keeps people away from the really important thing, which is maybe it's just the opposite. And you should ask these guys questions and say, what are you looking for? And see what they say. All right. Well, let's see what kind of reports we get. Um, East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Richard C. Hoagland. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Boy, I'll tell you, I've been listening, and I just about jumped out of my seat when I heard all this talk about Phoenix. Uh, You said something about 30 degrees. 30-30. 30 Okay, well, uh, an interesting point I'd like to to, to show you that uh, I don't know if this is coincidence or uh, part of your uh, scheme you're looking at, but at 30 degrees, roughly 45 minutes, I guess, is the city of Atlanta, which has in its courtrooms a phoenix rising. Basically, the, the symbol of Atlanta is a phoenix. It says resurgent and uh, 18, uh, 1865 underneath. Now, you're calling from where? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. Well, Atlanta, Atlantis, why does NASA have a yeah, satellite Yeah, that's what's Atlantis? been going through my mind as well. You know, by the way, that uh, uh, Pike, um, uh, Albert Pike, who was the founder of kind of the American version of masonry, lived for a long time in Little Rock, Arkansas. You knew that out, right? No, uh, no I'm not aware of that. No, I wasn't either. And there's a certain president who lived and and worked in Little Rock. Little Rock, yeah, that's who's true. Currently president yes. when all this is going to hit the proverbial fan. Well, just just knowing the president you're speaking of, he'll figure a way to turn turn it into a plus. Well, it is a plus. That's my point. It's going to take. Look, we used to have a CBS when I was there. We used to say that NASA was the only agency that could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> you know, you go to the moon and you make it seem boring and trivial and stupid, and no one ever goes back. Well, that's a cover, guys. It's really extraordinary, and our job, should we choose to accept it, Mr. Phelps, is to make sure they don't do it again this time. All right. Could Atlanta be some sort of, uh, maybe not Phoenix, but Atlanta, there's some sort of diversion. I mean, you were talking about fear. Phoenix, uh, the, the the last caller said that she didn't think people in Phoenix would, you know, that they're kind of Take it walking well. around. Yeah. yeah, but in Atlanta, there's already the fear factor from the last three bombs. But remember, Atlanta is not part of the celestial cartography, and Phoenix is. And so we I... now can prove that going back to the first Apollo. All right, thank you. So I guess we've got to keep our eyes on Phoenix. I, in fact, let me tell you how close I'm going to keep my eyes on. All As right. you know, Art, we are moving. We were out seeing... Well, I know it, but they don't. Richard is leaving Manhattan area, and uh, he's going to move... 
in the next two weeks, we are moving all of the enterprise. We are going to headquarter it in the southwest, close to Phoenix. I'm not going to tell everyone exactly where yet. All right. But it's going to be close because that part of the country, I think, for a whole bunch of reasons, having to do with this, the native Hopi traditions, the extraordinary research facilities concentrated uh, in, in New Mexico, Los Alamos, which is basically controlling the NASA discovery mission to them leaving this fall, that part of the country is pivotally important for the next phase of our investigation. And so we're going to leave the wilds of Manhattan for the interesting wilds of the southwest. Just in time for good weather, by the way. I understand it's getting uh, warmer and um, it is. Uh, damper and greener. Um, Richard, it's kind of unusual this year. Uh, I'm not sure about Phoenix, but we should be way above 100 degrees uh, by mid-June. And it's bizarre. Uh, we're in the 80s, and something's different with our weather here. We're not getting the violent weather. We're just getting totally unusual weather for the desert. Well, some night we can talk about hyperdimensional weather. That's part of the predictions of the model. There are very good reasons in the model for why we're seeing the kind of weirdness that we're seeing. It definitely is. I mean, there's no question about it. We can argue about why, I suppose, the weather is changing. Uh, but we're either in a very unusual cycle, and man hasn't been around long enough, I guess, to document what the cycles mean or how often they occur. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no way of knowing, but the weather is go- undergoing an obvious change. Well, I think that your first statement is very true. We have really only been around it was instruments and observation and recording devices for a tiny fraction of the geological history of this planet. A so, cosmic blink. Yeah, so our, 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 our database needs to be expanded. We don't know what normal is because we haven't experienced normal. All right, let's try one last question. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Richard Hoagland. Hi. Hi, Art. Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, my name is Gene. I'm calling from Las Vegas. Yes, sir. Real quick. Uh, Richard, uh, what sticks out most to me while hearing about Phoenix is the, the Vatican building and uh, observatory in Arizona. Mount Graham. Is there, mm-hmm. is there any connection in your opinion? Of course. <laughs> it's in their library if we can get access to it. Uh, you know, I should have thought of that myself. I, I should have thought of that connection while we're off wondering about uh, things that are connecting. I should have mentioned Mount Graham. Well, Richard, we've done it again. Uh, and you've really done it this time. <laughs> I hope we're, I haven't done it forever. We're going to be watching Phoenix. We're going to be watching the Mars Pathfinder mission over the next several days. And I guarantee you, Richard, um, if the mission is lost and then magically recovered, you're headed for the cover of Time magazine. Oh, well. <laughs> As um, we say out here at Enterprise, stay tuned. Or maybe the cover of Rolling Stone. Who knows? Anyway, my friend, um, it's not goodbye. It's until next time. What a program. Tell everybody good night, Richard. Good night, America, wherever you are. (laughs) Not even that has meaning. Good night, Richard. That's it, folks. I'm Art Bell from the High Desert. Good night. Good night.